Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Crimson Peak. Ghosts are real. That much I know. I've seen them all my life. is frozen. I run you a hot bath. There are parts of the house that are unsafe. What was that? The house as old as this one becomes in time a living thing. Never go below this level. It starts holding on to things. Has anyone died in this house? Specific deaths, violent deaths. With us once again is Lauren Grieve. Hello, thank you for having me again uh, on this dark and stormy afternoon. It was actually great. As soon as you said Crimson Peak, I was muted, but uh, a peal of thunder rolled past my house. So that was that was <laughs> wonderful timing. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's ninth film is a return to the ghosts of the devil's backbone. The concepts of human emotion etched into stone, recording fragments of the past as warnings to the living. And once again, the greatest monster is not to be found in the realm of the supernatural. Now I'm going to court controversy here by saying that this 2015 picture may in fact be my unexpected favourite Del Toro to watch. Even over and above the excitement of Pacific Rim or the wonderful characters of the Hellboy duology, it might not be his crowning technical achievement in terms of the sheer amount of depth and texture that make up his dark fantasy masterpiece, Pan's Labyrinth. It may not even be as solid a ghost story as The Devil's Backbone, which was conceivably more of an achievement considering it was made on one eleventh the budget of the still pretty modest Crimson Peak. That was 4.9 million, I think, versus the 55 mil for Crimson Peak. And what he managed to get out of the available cast and crew all the way back in 2001. Nor was it as recognised as The Shape of Water, without a single Oscar nomination to its name to signify its importance in film history to a certain set of highly important people. But on a personal level, this film packs so much into its two hours that I love, and unlike Hellboy 2 or Pacific Rim, it doesn't leave me mourning for a wonderful Del Toro-helmed follow-up that will never be made. Nor with Devil's Backbone or Pan's Labyrinth does it leave me hurting so badly at the injustices I see on screen. Because even if we push past the harm and death being inflicted upon innocent fictional children in those two films, we cannot ignore the horrors of the real-life war that their struggle is the parable for. 
Crimson Peak is self-contained. It needs no sequel, and it isn't set against the backdrop of a real-life genuine horror, save for the ravages that the Victorian age played upon the human body and soul. And if you've read any of New Century, you'll know that I'm all about Victorian ravages. Because this is a gothic romance through and through, and unlike The Devil's Backbone, there is an unrivaled sumptuousness to proceedings, set as they are first in a lavishly recreated Buffalo, New York of 1901, and then for the next two acts within the jaw-dropping confines of the triumph in set design that is Alladale Hall. Crimson Peak sits at 71% on Rotten Tomatoes, at 6.5 on the IMDb, a 66 on Metacritic. But if you're familiar with the language of classical gothic romance like Jane Eyre, Rebecca, Wuthering Heights, coupled with a familiarity with del Toro's previous themes and the trappings of his spiritual world alongside the material, if you can get into the right vibration, this is not just an above-average but below-brilliant movie. Crimson Peak is nothing short of a masterpiece in ghost story cinema. Few others come close for me to its richness and sharp, painful melodrama, its intrigue wound around fear, and its layer after layer of imagery. The orphanage comes closest, neck and neck with the devil's backbone, trailed by the sixth sense and poltergeist and the others, and after that you enter the territory of movies with great premises and superb build-up in the first two acts, but which cannot stick the landing, like the George C. Scott film The Changeling, both conjuring pictures, The Woman in Black, The Innocence, The Entity, movies that all seem to do the same thing, a massive ghost-fueled fireworks show with lots of banging and screaming at the end. But that presumes that the dead are the scariest, most evil things in each movie. And in the case of Del Toro Projects, that was never the intention. This could well be why it did not snare horror audiences, as it was erroneously marketed as a horror. The jump-scare crowd would have had little in the way of adrenaline-burst stings to compulsively snack on, which would be why this got the reputation for not being scary enough. Again, the point just sailing on by. This is a beautifully arranged puzzle, which, once solved, still retains that beauty as you examine the structure. It's dark and twisted and sad and frightening, but on a level which requires empathy, even with monsters. So we're going to move through Crimson Peak moment to moment, taking you on a grand tour of this magnificent architecture, uncovering details and secrets as we go. Uh, one thing Del Toro said on the uh, commentary which stuck with me, and I think this is going to be with me, I think, from now on with movies... He was talking about harvesting detail, as in you watch the film and you draw something out of it and you extract that meaning for yourself and it is of value to you and you harvest that from the movie. I love that idea. So we're going to harvest the hell out of this thing for you guys. We won't pillage, but we will harvest and share the spoils. Uh, one thing I will say before we start, this, this film kind of starts where Jane Eyre left off. Uh, have you have you read Jane Eyre, um, Lauren? 
Uh, I have not, actually. Uh, I'm much more versed in the gothic horror rather than gothic romance genres. We also wanted to ask you about the um, the Lovecraft-Poe overlap, because this one, I think, is leaning a little more in the Poe direction. Oh, yeah. This is his territory I, and his era. Yeah, I 100% agree. And uh, like I said, there's one Lovecraft story in particular that this movie reminds me of, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of Poe's themes and stories are just, like, you know, dripping with these themes. So, like, it's a very easy walk for that. Uh, there was a uh, 2011 uh, film of Jane Eyre with uh, uh, Mia Wozikowski, the um, uh, star of Crimson Peak, and it's got Michael Fassbender in it, and we uh, tracked it down on Blu-ray. It is quite gorgeous to watch, very un- unnerving, and I, I realised as-, as they kind of got through it that um, uh, the re- I-, I won't spoil it, but the relationship between uh, Thomas and um, Lucille... It gets to a certain point in uh, Jane Eyre, then Jane goes, right, uh, I'm up out this bitch, peace, and leaves the house and goes and just pursues her own life. And then she comes back later and it turns out the house burned down because uh, the uh, the other woman went uh, uh, crazy and terrible things happened. So effectively, Jane Eyre stepped out of her own story and missed the third act. And that's classic <laughs> literature, is it? <laughs> that's kind of amazing, though. <laughs> it's 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 a great kind of moment in the film because you're like, wow, they totally like. Imagine if um, if Wolverine in a, like in the third act of the Wolverine, the one which whether in uh, Japan was like, oh my god, they've they've kidnapped uh, Mariko. Uh, one ticket to Canada, please, and just flew away from Japan. I'm about this bitch. I'll come back in a few years, see if it all worked out. But that I don't think that's necessarily um, something that that is that unusual in this kind of story because the uh, the well, maybe it's more to do with the audience. But if you think about where the focus of Wuthering Heights lies, and where the focus of a lot of people who talk about Wuthering Heights lies, the focus is on this intense relationship between Kathy and Heathcliff and oh my god this is like the perfect love and a thing to model on and it's the like perfect? have you read the last third of the book <laughs> yeah um Wuthering Heights is a story of dark dark obsession and so is Crimson Peak so it stays true to that and it delineates the difference between love and obsession in a really wonderful distinct manner by the end I'd like to say so we begin with Edith Cushing's early childhood encounter. Now, this was written by Del Toro. It's, a, it's one of his originals, and it feels like it was a novel. It's got this, this wonderful flow to it and a very professional understanding of what made the classics work. It does feel like an adaptation. Hmm. So we begin in 1887 with this little girl whose mother has just been uh, taken by the black cholera. And... Immediately we see, like, after the funeral, and she, it's closed casket because, good God. And, uh, like, one of the first things you notice is this great big baleful gravestone as they bring the, uh, the coffin towards it. And it's, it's almost the shape of a, a woman, but it's got this very sort of, like, a rounded bonnet-type shape. And it sticks in the mind because when the little girl is lying in her bed at night, that great black shape appears in the hallway the creeping spectre of her mother this 
black spirit, played wonderfully, as usual, by Doug the Hands Jones. It is one of the most eerie ghosts I've ever seen on film. The way they handle the dead in this, they added very little CG to it. A lot of people would assume because of the ephemeral nature of them and the sort of the floating bits that they're all just sort of CG'd on there. But most of them are just actors in makeup and costumes, which they've added a transparency to in post. They've, they've added the effect to it, but it's, it's, it's a solid thing that has been made misty. And this great black shape comes creeping towards her silently and lay uh, as she cowers in the bed that this enormous black clawed hand closes around her shoulder and the first thing that happens is this ghost of her mother curls up in the bed beside her as something from another world that shouldn't really be there and it's nurturing and terrifying and and the whisper of And uh, it's it's just a, it's a wonderful way to start a movie like this because it lays straight down, and like the first line in the film, because actually the first thing you see is her as an adult in the snow, blood on her cheek, and she murmurs in, in, as the narration, "Ghosts are real," and we're in Devil's Backbone territory immediately because this monologue is at the beginning and at the end. And uh, it lays down the central premise of the movie, or at least how it's going to apply to her internal character musing. And it sets up the one of the key themes straight out the gate because the the closed casket, the fact that her father insisted on it because he didn't want Edith to see her mother in the state she was in because of what it was that killed her, which was black cholera. Um, Edith feels she has been deprived of the opportunity to say a proper goodbye to her mother. And the mother turning up, to me, was the two of them trying to say goodbye to each other. And one of the themes that weaves throughout the whole of this, and it it goes with the gothic um, sort of secrets are the backbone of, of how the story plays out um, and and mystery and things which are hidden. And as a result, emotional cycles are not allowed to close properly, plays throughout the whole film. And it affects almost every single character through the story. Uh, In this scene as well, you get to to see the the wonderful lighting schemes. We've talked about Del Toro's use of colour before, but it is... I think it, it's most luscious in this film, as it, 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 there's this wonderful mix of sort of uh, in, in the bedroom. It's kind of it's got some sort of a, a, a greens, but not the same oppressive greens that turn up later on. It's it's, it's more goldish it, greens. It's a, yeah, the 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 lamplight being gold, and because this is in Buffalo, New York, where everything is uh, is is tinted with this safe feeling sense of gold uh, because of course she's being raised in the lap of luxury she is a, a, a young heiress so everything about her home has got this golden lamplight around it and 
the it, it sort of halos around the actual lamps and the candles. And I think they've got they've got electrical lights as well. They do. Yeah. It's it's this sense of wealth and warmth, which is emphasised by the fact that her father is a, a warm person too. It's not that. I mean, you would almost imagine most stories that start with this child in this incredibly wealthy family to feel cold, to feel that they are emotionally cut off. But that's not the case. She is very close to her father. She may not always approve of everything he does, um, but she is very close to him. And I appreciate that the um, the gold color in his other films have always been for the magic in the fairy world and, and hope and things like that, like Pan's Labyrinth. We talk very extensively about that. And in here, it's also to kind of capture that idea of like the hopefulness of the new like America at the, like, the turn of the century being like very forward thinking, very future thinking and very uh, like hopeful as a society, as an area, as a, as a place to live. Uh, and I, I think that's like a nice cross since we're going through all these films. It's something that Del Toro uses gold quite a bit and it's almost always for magic, hope and fairy world. And then in this one, it's using almost that theme from previous films or that we talked about or that actually were made. Now that I think about it, the chronology of this is hard to get in my head sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but the the fact that essentially in this film, America is that fairy world is is nice and quaint in a way that I appreciate as part of the um, period piece nature of it. Mm. Yeah, well, that that feeling of hope and going to the new world being something that you know people were still doing with stars in their eyes i'll get there and the streets will all be paved with gold and blah 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 it it it's it gets that across but in such a way as it still feels positive it doesn't feel as though it's gone past the point where people were starting to see the cracks um, and incidentally that gold color also pacific rim it's gypsy danger's heart yeah, yeah, and I think it's also important to mention that it's a it's a very kind of like orange gold. It's very specifically not a red gold. Uh, I don't know. That's so that's so delicate. That's so hard to do. And and this this film is very as you I think you put it before is visually sumptuous, and uh, that's an appropriate way to to put it. I think just the the amount of of work and effort that would have had to go in to make it this way is astounding. Oh, and uh, there's a little visual cue uh, in The Ghost of the Mother. Uh, if you folks have got access to Google Images, uh, look for uh, the front cover of Dario Argento Inferno. What we're looking at is uh, the top of a skull, and then underneath that, the, um, uh, the, the lower jaw of a, a, a woman. And, I mean, for no... <laughs> That imagery was kind of in live and let die as well, but uh, the the head of the mother has that great big skull, but with the, the, the human jaw underneath talking. Um, when she comes back the second time, it's actually Jessica Chastain's lower jaw. So there's that, uh, uh, the, the, the warning is directly tied in with what she needs to be afraid of. 
Okay, so uh, the next, we cut forward, uh, how many years later is it? 11, 14? 14. Okay. We cut forward 14 years, and Edith is now a struggling writer. She's still a rich heiress, but she wants to be taken seriously. And uh, she's walking through the streets of Buffalo, and very significantly doesn't seem to be too particularly fussed about getting the disgusting amount of mud that the streets are awash with on her boots. Uh, she doesn't really mind getting her uh, uh, her boots and her, her pretty dress dirty. And then as she uh, walks up the stairs of her, is it her father's building? Yes. Yeah. Uh, she meets Dr. Alan McMichael, played by Charlie, Charlie Hunnam of Pacific Rim. Uh, who is Alan presented as in this film, uh, as a character? Um, he comes across as maybe a childhood friend of Edith's. I got the strong impression fairly early on that he was um, somebody that her father knew but given how close he is in age to her I'm guessing it's that her father knows his family Mm. Um, but he is now a doctor and has uh, rented rooms in her father's building to practice from Um, I think he's been away training somewhere she hasn't seen him for a long time but he likes her he respects her he supports her and she feels you know friendship with him she doesn't seem to be the least bit romantically interested in him and that is presented as absolutely fine that these two people could be uh, platonic friends like that indeed but he does try to reach out to her and sort of rekindle their uh, their former relationship and specifically he introduces something to her that he knows will appeal to her to kind of emphasize, look, we have this in common. Mm. I I got definitely the idea that he was romantically interested in her and that it was more of like a like a society like a socialite kind of thing where uh her father was trying to set her up with him for a variety of reasons he was super into it she was not which is like a kind of a classic trope of uh, a lot of these kind of stories um but uh and and he's also positioned to be he also plays the detective role he's also positioned to be the hero and all of those get subverted and i want to point out that when we see him doing doctoring things it's specifically optometry mm-hmm. which is relevant for future conversations i would imagine as we go through <laughs> the film I, I find it very strange that he is presented as kind of an all-around doctor while optometry has like for a long time been a very specific specialty mm-hmm. But um, maybe the idea is that, well, I mean, Buffalo is a big city. Like, usually you'd have specialists. I don't know. I'm not quite as familiar with my turn-of-the-century medical professional, like, knowledge, but that it seemed strange to me that they would specifically point out that he was an optometrist and yet also had other doctorly training. Mm. Well, I think Edith says something about if you if you take ill in Buffalo, he's the man you want to see. But again, as we said, he's been away training somewhere. It could well be that when she knew him, he was just a regular family doctor and he's mm. been away no, specialising no, in optometry, which would also... Oh. That would play into his what appears to be a relatively recent interest in photography. Hmm. Yeah, and and he is setting up the optometry equipment. Uh, so maybe he was away in London studying optometry to be a specialist. That that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you've got problems with your eyes in Buffalo, then he's the guy to yeah. see. Lauren, uh, I might add, folks, is uh, my um, go-to medical specialist whenever it comes to anything medical-related for New Century. Having a, uh, yeah. a doctor character, um, I, I need occasionally to do something here and there which is related to 
for what they knew at the time and I can't just assume that something was known so I check Wikipedia and then I cross-check it with Lauren just to make absolutely sure and usually we, we kind of hash it out and, and, and make it sort of like sometimes we're, we're kind of we nudge the advancement of their understanding forward just a little bit because there's there's a few years <laughs> they of, figured it out quickly yeah they had to yeah. otherwise the, the human race would die out so. indeed Wendigos yeah. are the mother of invention yes <laughs> Usually it's something that falls just right in that sweet spot. There's like a 10-year sweet spot, mm. uh, like when all of the like the divergence mm-hmm. in your story is from reality. And anything that happens then is tricky to nail down yeah. how it would probably go. Because That's someone might fun. have developed it because they needed to, or maybe no one developed it because no one was thinking about it. Or maybe the person who developed it was dead. Or went yes. to go. <laughs> And there's there's a surprisingly large number of times where it's information that was lost to the West for whatever reason and could reasonably be rediscovered under certain circumstances. And yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about that. It's been fun. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, it just occurred to me while you, you were talking about the circumstances of, uh, of Alan McMichael and, and their courtship. I assumed that it had been called off by the mother who didn't approve of Edith. But if... As, as you guys say, Edith wasn't particularly interested in Alan McMichael in that way. And she said, ah, I'd, I'd rather not marry him. I do. You know, you are fantastic, though. I would like to keep you as a friend. The mother could have taken a very bitter turn in that regard, which mm. would account for why she is such a mare. It's feasible. I think that the way it came across to me was that they, the last time they saw each other was too long ago for there to have really been any concrete steps towards getting them together. Hmm. That this is something that's, as I say, fairly recent. Um, and uh, I think her mother is just a mare, hmm. just generally. Yeah, she uh, seems to be modelled on the mother in Titanic. Yeah, but, but, but she does allow for my favourite line in the film... Mm-hmm about how Edith wants to be Mary Shelley and she'd rather be a widow. And it's just yeah. like, mm, that's so good. Yeah. What did she say? Like, oh, oh, our own little Jane Eyre. She died a spinster. Jane, I think she's a oh, Jane, sorry, Austin. No, uh, Jane, Jane Austen. Austen. Obviously, Jane Eyre is a fictional yeah. character written by the Brontes, specifically Charlotte. Uh, our own little Jane Austen. She died a spinster, you know, much like you're going to. Yeah, this is what passes yeah. for wit in Buffalo. No, I think yeah. her, her main reason for taking um, umbrage Edith at this point is that... Um, right, let me get this straight. Thomas has so far been pursuing Alan's sister, Eunice. And Alan's mother is very keen on the idea that her daughter is taking up with a baronet. Mm. And then Edith pours cold water on it by making it quite clear what she thinks of the British aristocracy. Oh, Jesus. I, I, so they were already like, they, they were the, the, the heralds for uh, his arrival. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Right. He's there. I mean, he's there to present his uh, model to mm. potential investors, yes. But he's also there ostensibly for Eunice. I think they maybe met in Europe and then he's followed her here or something. Right. And Eunice, of course, features later on. Yes. Um, Edith meets with an editor who kind of disparages her and is patronising and says, oh, you're quite loopy. You need to write a romance. No, 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 this ghost story crap. And so she the, uh, goes downstairs to transcribe her handwritten story into uh, typed 
so she can send that to the Atlantic magazine, which was started in 1857. And I feel like I need to bring the Atlantic into a uh, new century uh, because I've already mentioned the uh, Washington Post and uh, you know, and, and anything specifically which uh, uh, is disparaging of Trump now uh, gets a name check if it was around back then <laughs> as a little not, not, not of the head tip of the hat. Then Sir Thomas Sharp arrives, uh, and it's Tom Hiddleston, who is one of my absolute very favourite people. I can only agree with that statement. He, <laughs> he is so good in this film. I mean, really, the three, the three main characters, oh, the, the three main actors are all unreal in how good they are, and but he carries so much weight, and there's so much, like, delicacy in especially his facial expression that conveys emotions that become so much more complex on a second viewing it's fascinating to watch the nuance in his character is incredible i'd say his is of the three of them um mia Wyslowski, um has the easier of the jobs because she's got to be the plucky heroine and she's got to be smart and resourceful and she's also got to be fragile but at the same time strong through that and, and that's a that's that's by no means easy but um jessica chastain has to somehow make her character sympathetic even throughout all of what happens through her but hiddleston has to really make his character sympathetic because you, you've got to kind of feel one way and then feel the other and feel it very strongly. You, you can't just feel a little bit ambiguous. Mm. I think for me, um, and this is probably revealing a little bit too much too early, but I, it kind of needs to be said, part of how the, the character development works is that your sympathy is kind of on a sliding scale and it's according to how many people this person has being mean to them at any one time. Hmm. So you've got Edith, who past a certain point in the film gets dumped on by everybody around her um, and doesn't have the support network to be able to stand up to it. So you feel really, really sympathetic towards her. You've got um, Thomas, who seems like you're set against him to a certain point but then you realize that he's being bullied effectively by sister mother potentially father lucille was abused by their mother and then the mother it's like okay well i can pour all my frustration into her oh wait she was also being abused by her husband so it's kind of like this this constant shifting up of where to lay the blame for where all this shit started and it's it's also just highlighting the cycle of abuse and how that manifests in a family and and like yeah um and i i think the reason that hiddleston has like such a heavy part to play is in the in the film edith and lucille don't really like Lucille is a certain character at the beginning, and she's that same character at the end. And Edith is a certain character at the beginning, and she refines that character at the end. Mm. And there's a time in the middle where she's, you know, a little bit different, but it's more chalked up to, uh, like, physical grief. ailment. Yeah, and Well, grief. I mean, literal poison. Mm. Um, but, uh, but Thomas is such a... Because he, he starts one way... 
and he changes so much. Like, if anybody has a character arc in this film, it's him. Oh, yeah. And it's he's so conflicted about, like, the, the different ways that he's being pulled, and he's got so many different motivations that are conflicting at any given time that conveying that physically is so specifically impressive that I, I yeah, this might be the best performance I've seen by Tom Hiddleston in doing that and in like conveying so much so simply. Mm. And that, that transition from kind of emotional state to emotional state for him is all the more impressive when you consider that we are not with him. Edith is our protagonist. We kind of get to see up, but there's no specific internal monologue apart from the beginning and the end but we we get to see how she evolves and why we don't really get to see that with thomas but what we do get is kind of a relief we understand how he must be changing because of the relationships that we see around him Mm. it's it's because of how the women in his life are towards him that shape and form his character. And that is such a reversal in terms of what we are customarily used to seeing in a lot of films where oftentimes the female characters are only there to have their relationships defined by the men around them. And in this case, the men around them are defined by their relationships. Yeah. Thomas uh, arrives, reads her manuscript, and immediately shows interest. And uh, there's a, a draw between the two of them, uh, possibly because she just hasn't met someone who likes and is interested in the macabre in the same way that she is. Also, someone who likes and is interested in her work. Yes. That is a powerful um, uh, warmth to glow under. I'll say. Um, and also I I love in the commentary at this point uh, Del Toro describes Edith as uh, someone in the future who can see the past while he describes uh, Tom as someone from the past who can see the future and there's something so wonderfully elegant in that description as to why they feel drawn to each other that I just I love that that concept and that you could extrapolate that and I am kind of reaching here so you know just go with the metaphor the relationship between the British I don't even know what to call it the colonial kind of old-fashioned we're very set in our ways we can see that the world is going to go on without us and that makes us sad but extending extending a, a kind of an element of support to the American child, which is the next generation and will go on into the future and will carry their ideas forward, but in a different way. So it's, and, it's and kind of that old and young juxtaposition. And they're both, uh, they're both like positions of social power, but from very different perspectives because Tom is a baronet, which I had to look up because that's not a thing we have here in the States. Hmm. Um, But the idea that he has, he's considered to have like land and he has a title, but he's otherwise a commoner. So it's like this like very old, uh, like high social standing that has been squandered to a certain extent to the point where he's not got much. While on the other side, 
Uh, there's a lot of indications that Edith's father kind of came from nothing and was more manufactured in this high social status. Uh, and and self-made, which is the American way of doing things. Hence the hands thing yeah. in a moment, yeah. But but it's but, but it's also very specifically uh, depicted in their suits, which mm. you know this might be jumping a scene ahead, literally one scene. But uh, Edith's father specifically has a manufactured suit, like it was made by, like it was made bulk kind of thing. It has very like crisp lines, but it doesn't quite fit specifically perfectly while uh sir thomas's is specifically uh handmade and old it's like as an it's, antiquated design as are lucille's dresses they're, they're the only ones who have handmade clothes mm. yes hand stitched rather than machine stitched and it's amazing that you can actually tell that like they actually did hand make and, and machine stitch like the two different things and it's amazing that you can even tell that on screen the suggestion is that these are inherited clothes which they have made to stitch around themselves and they have had remade and in fact it did occur to me when the um, there was a, a an extra with one of the designers and she talked about Lucille having two outfits that were almost identical mm. but in different colours and it made me think that perhaps she in fact makes her own clothes clothes because they can't afford to have anybody else make them for them and there's only one dress that she really knows how to make <laughs> that, that would make a kind of sense yeah. oh, oh it is amazing but you see this is the thing if you if you have like one des- like if you have a recipe that you make so well you eat it every damn day, but you never cook anything else. Um, but the, the other thing I was going to mention just quickly with regards to the um, the baronet element, that also sets up Thomas as a, as a specific type of landed gentry, if you like. Um, what he lacks, as well as this um, this sense of them uh, their family having become bankrupt almost and they've lost all of their money, so they don't have any cash flow, they don't have anything they can spend. Um, the fact that, as you say, Lauren, the, the baronet status is like you have land, you have you have standing, but it other than that you're you're a commoner, it means he's not attached to that aristocracy level which means that it doesn't matter what you lose you have a network that you can fall back on thomas yeah. is alone <laughs> oh video game reference yeah, um <laughs> but, and, but also uh he's literally trying to sell the land yes because he's trying to sell the red clay well it's i think it's mentioned that that was like how their fortune was made to begin with and he's yes. trying to make a like get that back but all he has is his name and his land and he's trying to use one to sell the other mm-hmm. to get the money and all i have is my my land and the will to to work it that's it mm. but the that again you have this metaphor for how he is digging out the very thing that supports him that the the reason that the uh, their land is not really worth any, much anymore is because the clay has been overmined to the point where there's very little left there but swamp mm. and That'd he wants to sell more sinking. of it because it's all they have left mm. but in the process he's digging out the very hill that the the house stands on he's he's messing up their foundations which were shaky to begin with yeah 
and, and it's literally sinking like their house the like the biggest monument to their family is literally sinking into the mire mm. it's a sinking ship absolutely and as the as the film progresses and as you say Lauren he does have this this wonderful development and, and character arc you get the feeling that what he really wants is to leave he wants to run away but he can't yeah it's a sinking ship but instead of bailing the water he's taking up the planks and making a fire with it mm-hmm. <laughs> and also the the house is in such disrepair and, and the, the 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 feeling you get when you're around it the, this sense of finite um faded uh, uh glory and and this you know there's clearly elements of this which date back to medieval times it's got true gothic in there and has been built upon and uh you know parts of parts of this house are very old i get just tingly feelings hearing those words um it's a shipwreck already mm. And they're living yeah. in this this hull of a house. Yeah. And that t- the fact that they've gone through so much and are having to contend with, with living this way, initially you don't know any of that. When he comes in and, and sort of has his, his little clay mining model and he's trying to um, convince Edith's father and his business partners to invest so that he can make the full-size version of it, the response that he gets is is patronising and infantilising and taking away any of his um, his agency or autonomy. That the whole remark about the hands. You have a woman's hands, my lord. He's he's an engineer. He designs. Just because he didn't physically go out and dig up the clay with his hands doesn't mean that that he he isn't, you know, fully engaged and invested in what he's doing. But very significantly that patronising and infantilising is something that Thomas has been exposed to and had to deal with his entire life. Everybody has treated him like that. And you can see almost this sort of, this fire flash behind his eyes when when Cushing talks to him like that. Well, especially because he doesn't want to be considered a child. Being a child was nightmarish for him. Being an adult is the only time when he feels he has agency. Absolutely. He does not want to go back to a time when he's being called Lord Fauntleroy, go back to your manor house. Mm -hmm. Oh, I suppose I'll just go back and just sit here while we sink then. Well, but then a part of him is still so trapped there, and that's related to his relationship with Lucille. Absolutely. Well, that's the only place, in spite of the fact that he resents it, that's the only place he feels safe. It's the only thing he knows. And it's the only, yeah. Um, And since we mentioned it before, I just want to say that I want Lucille's entire wardrobe Mm -hmm. uh, because those dresses are incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think only Lord of the Rings tops it in terms of costume design and that's only because there were far more characters that they had to think about what each costume meant for each person Mm. and you know you can't really compete with that with uh, three main characters and a bunch of a bunch in support who then disappear the um but the actual individual costume design is most definitely on a par with any of the lord of the rings costumes Mm. absolutely And I want to just mention, it's not just the costumes, and as much as I really like Sir Thomas Sharp, and as much as I really like Edith, I kind of love Lucille. Mm. Like, there's something about that character that I really appreciate in a lot of ways, and I know I probably shouldn't, but I don't know, her outfits are amazing, there's something about, there's like, there's a tragedy to her that I really appreciate, and she has a certain aesthetic that, like, other than the crazy that we'll get into uh i really really like her and that might say more about me 
But uh, I don't know. It, it really says a lot about how the character's written and how complex she is. Absolutely. I think you, you learn enough about her that you can see through the distortion she's become to the the girl she was who was put in a position where she had to make a choice and one of them was lay down and die and she took the other one. This wasn't nominated for any awards in 2015's Oscar ceremony. Not even the technical awards, which the wonderful Mad Max Fury Road pretty much swept the board on. And when you look at the film, it's impossible to imagine anybody who appreciates movies and the craft of filmmaking to not consider the set design, the costumes, a beyond magnificent achievement. Crimson Peak should have been nominated for pretty much everything that Mad Max Fury Road was nominated for, and Fury Road should have won fucking Best Picture. Instead, it was Birdman. Mad Max Fury Road has beautiful costumes that evoke, but they evoke the theme and the setting, but not the characters. In Crimson Peak, you can see any pretty much any character and know so much about who they are and what drives them from just the visual element of their outfit that i can't think of too many other films that even come close to that uh i mean just like star wars but even then like look at the dress that lucille's wearing at the waltz scene where she's playing the piano on it it has teeth and it has a spine. Mm. It's so vividly crimson that it evokes forward to the ghosts we're about to see while also signifying the design of like the butterflies and moth theming that we're going to get into. It's so singly beautiful and yet dangerous looking that it's so representative of who Lucille is and what she brings to the table and what she's going to do that... I, it, there's just there's not really a comparison. Mm, yeah, the, um, Del Toro said something. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but he says that that costumes are not just wardrobe; they're story. You should be telling part of who your character is in how they dress and how they present themselves. And you can see that in every inch of this. There's a moment when uh, Lucille has finished playing her tune on the piano and she has the the sleeves that have the little hook on the the edge and she pulls them down and hooks it over her finger Mm. to... That, mm-hmm. that makes them almost like little partial gloves. Mm. She hides her hands. Yes. She wears sleeves that drape over her hands all the time. She doesn't like people to see her motivations. Also, oh. she is the house. She doesn't like leaving the house. She retracts her hands almost mechanically into her sleeves mm-hmm. to pull back <gasps> away from the outside world. Which is the same gesture her mother does when she gets out of the bath. Mm. Yes. You specifically said to Doug Jones, keep your hands in, and that is what Lucille does in a more elegant way, but that is the gesture she's replicating. Oh my god. <laughs> and and to an and to an even deeper level, as we talked about in many of these films, as I've specifically talked about, the idea of using objects to tell stories about characters, Lucille's object, as we come to find out, is the ring which she is not wearing in that scene. Now, I had it down as the keys. I had it down as the keys mm. and the piano. Well, so we're going to get to it. Well, the but ring's the, her mother's. 
Ah, but the ring is and the, the keys represent- are her mother's. Let Lauren finish. Continue, sorry, y'all. <laughs> but the ring is the representation of her becoming her mother. Yes. It's specifically the object that her mother is associated with in that picture, and it's the object that Lucille continually recovers. Yeah. The keys are her connection to the house. But she can leave the house. She can't stand to go without, without the ring. Without the ring. No, you're absolutely right. And she says at one point, I earned it. She earned that ring three ways. Uh, without spoilers at this point, can you say yeah, any wh- of them? Um, no. No. <laughs> but just really. bear that in mind for later, folks. <laughs> yeah. We'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah, we will. Um, okay, actually, while we're here, uh, uh, Lauren, uh, what are the totemic items for uh, Thomas and um, Edith. Yeah, so uh, I would say, because I I, I got five characters that I had totemic items for. Um, Real quick, we already mentioned her father, which is his suit. That it, his suit is like looks very expensive, looks very like high standing, but is manufactured. It's like very new and it's very like embodying that American dream. So we already talked about that. Um, for uh, the doctor, Alan, um, his is I think his optometry kit actually, even though he because he doesn't really use objects for a lot, but that's so singularly representative of him specifically being an eye doctor, but also can't really see what's going on and um he's trying to but he in the end like he can't see the ghosts he doesn't see any ghosts he doesn't really see that edith like isn't into him in some ways uh and yeah so anyway the two the the three main characters we already said lucille's ring i think uh thomas's is actually the little toy digger that he has because uh it's something that he's very proud of that he created and that it works and it's very slick and looks very good that he's taking around to all of these different people but the when you compare it to the actual machine that he's built which is this giant clanking rusting monstrosity that for the most part doesn't work it really represents his inability to grow up or grow past his um like that infantilization that uh the arrested development from the abuse and it's an uh, echo of the toys in the attic Yes, and it is an echo of the Toys in the Act, which was his, uh, the way that he dealt with the abuse was manifest in creating those little toys. And the and he's essentially going to these people with money and saying, look at this thing that I made. Isn't it great? You should acknowledge me. Uh, and they all turn him down for it so that's what i think his totemic object is because then he deals like you only see it at the beginning but then you see the larger version of it that he's fiddling with constantly throughout the film and uh even like comes back at the end because it's where the climax takes place so i think that object is thomas's um and edith's is the pen Yes. The pen that her father gives her, 100%, is her totem object. It's and even the gold, f- which is her colour. Yes, it's gold, which is her colour. It was given to her by her father, which is uh, like this her first source of somewhat overbearing, but from a, a love love from a good place and this strength. It uh, has something- more uses than a frying pan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and it's uh, you you only see it at the beginning and at the end. And in the middle part, she has most of her power robbed from her until she can retake up that pen. And it's representative of her intellectual nature, her creative nature, her uh, desire to write the book and her agency. And it's 
it's so specifically purpose. And it, it should also be mentioned that it's a specific kind of fountain pen that is like the, the tip, the dangerous part is hidden until you're ready to use it. Mm-hmm. And there's something about how delicate and gentle Edith is depicted until it's time to not be that way. And she steps up and really like shows what she's made of and and i yeah the pen is a hundred percent her totem yeah it also epitomizes her ability to communicate um and capture what she sees which nobody else sees which is the ghosts she writes about the ghosts very very early on and she has the ability to connect with them that nobody else seems to possess and coming back to alan's um optometry equipment he desperately wants to see the ghosts but he can't unless he pins them to glass with chemicals which is what lucille is doing with the butterflies yes yes oh that's good yeah i've got to say um this is a movie that i never hear anyone talking about it is freaking awesome being able to talk about it with you guys because <laughs> um uh, it's it's lonely loving a film this much that everyone else is eh, about mm. yeah you know it was very inspired by by books and paintings and then by movies in that order i think that uh i when i was a kid i read most gothic romances by anne radcliffe uh, by Matthew G. Lewis, by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, who wrote Uncle Silas, and then all the main ones, you know, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, in the case of Dickens, Great Expectations, and so forth. And and I really absorbed that, that flavor, you know, and E.T.A. Hoffman, his short tales. And then we were very inspired by the paintings of Caspar David Friedrich, uh, Grimshaw, the, the, the Victorian painter. There's actually a couple of images on Crimson that are exactly Grimshaw's, you know, with the cloud, uh, the cloud covered, covered moon and the dry leaves in the avenue and all that. And, and uh, I just felt I wanted to capture a, a feeling of the old movies that I saw. My first movie as a kid at age four was Wuthering Heights Mm -hmm. with Laurence Olivier. So it really imprinted in me. And when I was preparing Crimson, I was watching Spiral Staircase with Dorothy McGuire, uh, Dragon Week with Vincent Price, Jane Eyre with Orson Welles, and so on and so forth. And I wanted to to make this movie feel like that, to feel uh, at the same time very old-fashioned, but with some notably modern gender politics and sexuality and and it's a, a pure gothic romance. It's, I don't try to reinvent it. I don't try to be postmodern about it and go, I know they do. And I, I just go at it very earnestly. Does the, 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 the color in the film is, is so strong at times. Yeah. That, does that come from the <laughs> hammer? Um, I, I think Mario Baba more than Hammer, but Terence Fisher certainly. You know, Fisher was, in my opinion, a superb craftsman. You know, uh, Curse of the Werewolf is my favorite Hammer of all times, and and I I did the saturation is Hammer, 100. And and the the photographer, the cinematographer, and me, we were saying we wanted to do Technicolor on camera. This movie, I have color corrected this movie more times than any other movie I've ever done. But the color coding. The design of the of the wardrobe and the design of the sets are used in Crimson Peak as storytelling tools. They're not just beautiful; yeah. they're actually meaningful. Yeah. 
So we go to the reception, and there's the waltz. Uh, she dances. Well, uh, effectively, Thomas actually picks her up. She was just trying to, you know, have a sleep. He propositions her and asks her to come with him. Uh, he's gone way out of his way to pick her up, and she, rather than sleeping that night, goes to a party. The actual reception, Thomas holds court over the room. Like, like his presentation, I thought, was actually really pretty... Like, it was quite slick and and, and, and professional-sounding. So when he holds court for the, uh, uh, the room and explains to them about the waltz um, and the idea that it uh, would have to be so smooth and so swift that a candle flame held in the leading man's uh, hand would not go out... Uh, he's captivated everyone, and this is just after Lucille has captivated everyone with her passionate piano playing. And apparently for this scene, folks, um, they were going to have the whole room dancing, like the Age of Innocence, but apparently it was going to cost about a million dollars to do that, just for for the insurance and the logistics of it. It was the fact that they would have to pay all the extras um, more because they'd actually be doing something specific Rather in the just film. standing. Yeah. yeah, if they just stand around, they're cheap. So um, he chose to have just the, uh, uh, the, the Walking in the Clouds, Cinderella, um, Sleeping Beauty... You know, a man and a woman dancing around in a very beautiful and very visual way with this candle flame. And you, you, your, your eye is drawn to it and you think, did it just go out? No, it's still going. They beautifully lead you through this one and the, the music is stirring. And it's, um, it's again, it's Lucille playing and, and you can see on her face, she immediately disapproves of this girl that Thomas is dancing with. And it feels like she, she was thinking, could you not have picked somebody uh, old or infirm or uh, you know, somebody who I would feel less jealous of? Well, he's supposed to be going after Eunice at this point, remember. Mm. Um, and Eunice mm. is a, a not... She's not unattractive, but she is very... She's quite tall, she's quite gangly, she's not really presented as being the... Um, the butterfly that Edith is. Hmm. She certainly, there's nothing about her that suggests that she could oppose Lucille in any way. Yeah. Just a quickie about um, Thomas's outfit at this point, seeing as we were talking about costumes. Hmm. Um, his suit is like this really deep green black, and it really stands out amidst all of the. Uh, the, this American golden green warmth that we were talking about, and when they are, um, when they're in her father's uh, Edith's father's building, and it carries over to when they're at the ball, he looks like there's a hole in the world that follows him around. He's always slightly in shadow. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. And Edith is almost like the candle for me was like he's trying to carry this light and keep it lit she as is he moves around with it. I get you. And, and apparently, it should be mentioned that uh, Hiddleston is apparently that good of a dancer too. They actually <laughs> did that scene, and that's amazing because there's no trickery. Mm. Triple. Threat. Oh, he's fully trained. <laughs> <laughs> Classically uh, trained, you might say. Indeed. Uh, the uh, I, I must add uh, on the, the visual uh, editing, uh, at the very beginning, going back to that first sequence with the uh, ghost, it irises out on the, uh, the the flame of the lamp, and that it's it's got a kind of a flicker to it. There is a deliberate flicker added to make it evocative of Méliès and Lumière and the like the original 
you know, cinematic magicians, and it gives it that old world feeling, which is in turn evocative of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which we are going to cover, and that's um, a love letter to the uh, the silent era and the birth of cinema from uh, Francis Ford Coppola, and in my humble opinion, better than The Godfather. Moving forward, so... <clears throat> One other point about the dance. Um, in this dance, or just before this dance, Thomas tells Edith his flaw, his fatal flaw his tragic flaw which is which is I've always closed my eyes to the things that make Mm. me uncomfortable it makes everything easier and this includes the abuse he's been subject to and his complicity in extending that I think that my movies look, the, the more you are versed in the language I'm, I'm trying to articulate, the more you enjoy them. And that's precisely the position of the movie. The movie talks about present and past, and future and past. And, and it's said at, at the turn of the century in Buffalo, New York, which was at, the time, at that time the most electrified city in the world. Mm-hmm. The, the, the World's Fair had taken place. Uh, it was in the edge of modernity, every there are cars, buses, buildings are being built. And then the belief in the past, the fixation on the past undergoes, which is the old world. Right. And I think that's the thing. There's a character, Dr. McMichael, that actually has a perfect turn-of-the-century explanation of what ghosts are. Mm-hmm. He's trying to rationalize them. It's the age where the spiritualism is rampant. Yeah. People are consulting Ouija boards, they're wrapping tables, you know? So all this is reflected in the film as the period in which the movie takes place. Right, and it was learned men. It wasn't necessarily yeah. people on the fringes. It was learned men, people that were well-respected, doctors that were pursuing this, right? Yes. Pursuing these ideas. I think that that, that remained well into the 30s and 40s. I mean, World War II had a way to disperse everything a little bit, but it's well known that uh, uh, Nazis were very much involved in, in the occult. But back then, in the 1800s, famously, tragically, Arthur Conan Doyle was sort of a victim of... Uh, he was quite gullible yeah. in the way he approached the phenomenon of fa- fairy photography and spiritualism and costed him his friendship with Houdini, mm-hmm. who was the opposite. So this is a time where, where this discussion is on the forefront uh, and it's in the forefront of the movie. I, I'm not interested in the conflict between the rational. I'm, I, my movies are acts of faith. I believe in monsters. I believe in ghosts. Mm-hmm. And my movies never question, are they real? They're real. Period. Yeah. Let's talk about something else. You know, I, I, I show the monsters early on so you can enjoy the monster movie. With the ghosts, it's different. I mean, you... You can be scary and then little by little reveal a purpose or a, an emotion or a, a malignancy or a, or a beautiful nature, whatever. They're more open, but uh, in the movie there's no doubt. We open with one line that says, ghosts are real, this much I know. So <laughs> it's, it's not for discussion. And when I say I believe in monsters and all that, I don't believe in monsters existing. I don't, I don't think there is a Godzilla laying at the bottom of the Pacific. No Cthulhu. Uh, no Cthulhu okay. in the South Seas, no. But, but, but I, do, I do think that there is, there is going to be 20, 30, 40 years from now a perfectly reasonable explanation for ghosts. Mm-hmm. But the fact is the phenomenon, I think, in the case of ghosts, is real. Uh, I've experienced two things uh, that are 
not explainable. I'm a, I'm a skeptic in that sense. I believe in them as entities of imagination, but I have experienced two, two ghost uh, things and they were real. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt on that, and they freak me out. Um, we also then get to see uh, Alan's ghostly glass plate photographs, which is the concepts we've discussed before, which were... Uh, Lauren, I sent you the... Did you watch the stone tape? I haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet, oh. no. The, the concept we discussed before it was uh, that ghosts are part of a building, part of a place. They... Um, they haunt the land, that, that, that specific area, rather than being necessarily attached to people. And I love, um, and I love, and I've, I've mentioned this already, that Del Toro says, and it's on this commentary, in you know, years from now, we will have a perfectly mundane scientific explanation for it, which will make everything feel quantifiable. And uh, at the moment, though, still... We are in that period of, well, this could all just be absolute bunkum and it's just people imagining things. And, you know, clever trickery in the case. Of, there, was, there was quite a, 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 a rash of Victorian faked spiritual photographs because, remember, they were just going through a spiritual movement themselves. There were a lot of seances. And that's, that ties in with the whole Gothic romance, Gothic horror yeah. um, genre as well, that it was a kickback against the age of reason, yeah. that people wanted something to throw themselves into believing without needing all of that nonsensical sciencey crap. Trappings of the old world and the superstition, which is oddly comforting, not knowing everything. Mm, yeah. yeah, but then there's a fascination with the paranormal and the supernatural as well. And then when it actually shows up, it usually causes mayhem for those involved. Yeah, mm, absolutely. But, but I think it's that desire to then to to take the the new scientific and the old supernatural and find a way forward that blends mm. them and explains them. It's important also to note that this was the birth of photography as well over the, over this like 50-year period of the uh, late 19th century, very early 20th, mm. uh, where people were just experimenting with what they could do with photographic plates. And they're like, if I stand here for a bit and then move, it looks like there's a ghost there. Let's do something with that. Mm. If I dip myself in silver nitrate and then dance <laughs> in front of this magnesium flash, What'll happen? Well, you'll explode, but never mind. Make a good photo. <laughs> so then we get the butterflies and moths sequence where Lucille, who is frosty as the sister of Thomas, uh, to uh, this is the first time we really get to meet her and speak to her. Um, she's frosty to Edith, and they get on in this kind of forced, brittle Victorian ladies way, and it seems like there's. There's the beginnings of what might be warmth and reaching out. and But what Lucille lays down is that butterflies are fragile and everything beautiful is fragile. And she strokes um, Edith's face with a butterfly to illustrate, you're this, you're the butterfly. Uh, we only have moths back in uh, Crimson Peak. These great, big, gaunt, dark things. And what do they feed on? Butterflies, I'm afraid. She's warning her. Don't come with us. We'll eat you. Lucille tosses a butterfly to uh, ants uh, in a way that she's just, like, not even noticing that they're now eating this living creature that was struggling for life. And that when the ant bites into its eye, it's, it's, it's bone-chilling. It's, 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 that's a, 
a really effective moment of of uh, existential dread. Just the idea of some of nature being so red in tooth and claw that it will just start eating you while you're still alive. Mm. However, part of what that is, I think, intended to show, um, because of uh, Del Toro's ideas about it, it's that that beauty equals fragility is a myth yeah um that in actual fact beauty can be strength and strength can be beauty in and of itself um but he's also talked about uh beauty being as dangerous as anything else that that causes somebody to be rejected and pushed away because although it can seem like you're being embraced for your beauty people will only look at the superficial level and won't see what lies behind that. And that is what Lucille fails to do at this point. She doesn't see who Edith is. She sees what Edith is presented to her as, which is this charming, rich society girl who is not really going to pose all that much of a threat. She doesn't really click onto that until later. Then the uh, Sharp twins are discovered and disgraced as uh, Mr. Cushing finds out something about them through his private investigator. We're not party to it. And they are uh, told to leave and that they will be paid to do so. This is notable for the fact that Thomas has to give a uh, a humiliating speech about leaving, um, followed by running out after Edith as she retreats in, in, in a distraught and again being forced to tear her not just her to pieces but her work and anyone who's thrown themselves into something creative and then had someone tear that creative project to shreds angrily with disgust will understand how much that hurts if because you are pour, pouring yourself out onto that page onto that canvas on into that music there is a, a happy medium between being able to take criticism and still being raw to something this devastating. Mm. Yeah. There's a moment just before this, by the way, when they're in the park still, um, that sets up the connection between the, uh, the sharps, where the camera is this side of them... <laughs> We can't see. Sorry. (laughs) You've got the camera. They are in the foreground. Yes. um, Almost in silhouette. They're so close and so dark. They're under the branches of a tree, so sheltered from everyone else. That's right. So they're in shadow. In the background, you've got got the sunlight falling on Edith, and she's blurry. Mm. But what you get from their silhouette is the shape of what always makes me think of... You know those optical illusions where, where you've like, got is this like a vase or two, two people? faces yeah. and the vase in the middle? Or um, even if you focus on Lucille at that point with Edith just behind her, the one where if you look at it a certain way, it's an old woman looking down, and if mm. you look at it another way, it's a young woman looking up. Yeah. And that just... That frame... You talk about every frame of painting, Lauren. That really summed up for me this is where these relationships are going to go they are so intricately intertwined at this point that you couldn't if you took any one of them out you wouldn't have the same image yeah that scene specifically reminded me of um oh what are those those necklaces called with like the bar relief uh Cameos. Lucille's actually wearing one cameos i've seen a lot of cameos where it would be two of them facing each other mm-hmm 
And that was what reminded me, it, it reminded me of, and that may be because Lucille's wearing one, but it was still, like, very striking to me. And then uh, Edith's father is horribly murdered in uh, very suspicious circumstances in the bathroom. And he sets it up with um, the, the like, there's... There's men in there with him, talking to him, and then he's left on his own, which, as the camera slowly moves in and the music plays, you know bad shit's about to go down. The language of cinema suggests if someone is on their own in a bathroom, especially in anything which might involve murder, something terrible's going to happen. That's what it is. I said to you when we were watching this, in the commentary, Del Toro says when he, he designed the bathroom, he wanted it to be beautiful, to be this wonderful... Um, relaxing, sumptuous bathroom that that a terrible thing was going to happen in. And I was like, I, I don't get even a shred of that sumptuousness. There are exposed pipes and tiles. I am terrified from word one in here. It may as well be an executioner's block at Absolutely. this stage. <laughs> and, and that's why, because the language of cinema has taught me to be afraid of bathrooms. But also specifically cinematography. So the gothic romance is specifically using a lot of the tropes of the gothic horror genre but to tell a different kind of story and del toro is really really good at using horror tropes to tell different kind of stories and in here the way that the camera is leaving open space in certain areas and then zooms in on the straight razor by the way if you're in any kind of film and have a straight razor just like just get rid of that thing. Like, <laughs> that's it's it's Chekhov's d- confounded straight razor. Because like, oh no, the razor, the ra- oh, it wasn't the razor, but that's worse. <laughs> well, but that it was is. specifically why he did it. Is the thing he used all of the cinema da- cinema narrative language to say this man is going to die in this bathroom by this razor. It's what you'd expect. It's what we've done in other places. Oh wait, he still did part of that. He still died, but we didn't use a razor. We used something else. And like, there's that subversion that's specifically. Um, I mean, in in a way, really. Um, put there to throw you off the scent because some killing someone with a straight razor something small delicate but sharp and finesse uh is much a much more feminine instrument mm-hmm. even though it's like a, a literal masculine instrument there's mm-hmm. many many but this is a brutal like, physical murder of, uh, he has like, his head smashed repeatedly against a very solid sink smashing it, the sink and his head it, it, it's a it's a it's a violent crime of not just passion but regaining control over someone else in a way that is fiery and aggressive and as blunt as the sink that stoves in his head mm. and it's something that now having seen the whole film like it's shot in a way to make you think it's one person but by the end it recontextualizes that scene so so well I think as well the the lack of a blade being used at this point um, is in part because if it was used it would potentially draw some of the power out of another scene much later on in the film. Well, yes. Which I want to talk about when we get there yes. because not yet. I, I'm with you on that. Um, Absolutely. And, and it should also be mentioned that the, uh, like the whole in his head is specifically calling forward or it should be the first ghost that she sees calls back to that uh, specific image. There is a relationship with that which suggests that that ghost was killed in some similar way. Yeah, and in fact that makes 
at least three characters in this who have uh, frontal lobe damage. Mm-hmm. And that, in, in my head anyway, impacts on their ability Impact. to tell the difference between present, past, future. And, and that ties in with this sense that the the ghosts in this, the um, the messages that we get from the dead, are time non-specific. They don't know what's happening when. All they know is what they have to tell you. Yeah. They don't know when it pertains to. Well, that's because the uh, theory that Dr. Allen talks about is the ghosts are essentially recordings in mineral, much like the wax cylinders that we see throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that ties in with the stone tape as well because the idea that if you're going to trap a spirit in a building it's a stone building and if if people talk about um, objects being associated with ghosts you'll notice it's usually jewellery mineral, metal, stones and specifically the house uh, Allendale Hall has the clay that makes up the livelihood in the very walls you can see it in the cracks of the walls all throughout that main foyer not just in the floor so you're literally surrounded by the minerals that the ghosts are imprinted upon the uh, Del Toro in fact said on the uh, commentary that films themselves are like the ghosts of the past in that we are We have trapped them to watch them. We are watching... The parallel is that we are being fed a message from the past. And this is very forward thinking insofar as 300 years from now, watching Crimson Peak would be like watching a ghost conveying an emotion to you. Which begs the question, if you can catch a ghost on film, can you really catch them on digital? Because with film, (laughs) everything is then... It's a moment of the past that's been frozen. In digital, there is a sense that everything is now and it never changes. Mm. Or rather that it's actually the other way around. It's constantly changing. I believe uh, Del Toro actually shot this film with digital. It it doesn't look it. It looks like he's really tried to make it feel like film. But uh, I could be wrong on that. Uh, also, he says that he's he's fascinated with the mechanics of horror, but not the trappings of horror, which would be why he confounds audiences who want to see him deliver something standard. Mm, yeah. Well, this is this is the thing, and I've said this before when we've talked about horror and the kind of horror that I respond to. Horror films should not scare you. Horror films should remind you what you are already scared of. Or horror films should convey the terrors of the author. Yes. In which yeah, case, it's a, something like Get Out, you weren't, didn't even know how scared you were of that situation until you were plunged into it, into the sunken place. We'll cover it later this year, folks. I was going to say that it's a truly rare piece of horror fiction that gives you something new to be terrified of. Yeah. What happens... Next is that uh, Edith gets a letter from Thomas, Thomas doesn't she? Which saying that he's been told to 
uh, abandon her because he didn't have any money. And, yes. And not for the actual reasons he was Absolutely, told. which is importuning her father, really, because it's, oh, it it's suggesting that he had um, very mercenary reasons for separating them when in actual fact it was Edith's best interests he had at heart. They're playing Edith. Um, but she decides that, um, that she's going to seize her own life at this point and make her own choice, um, which is a very bold thing for her to for her to do. When she goes over to the hotel to find them, she's wearing a black coat. She's started cloaking herself in Thomas's colours. And, and notice that they're like the idea of oh he sent that thing up and there's a letter there too that like tells the real secret and her having to run off to the train station to like see, catch them before they leave. That is such a like narrative like pulp fiction kind of narrative trope that they're using specifically to manipulate a writer who would be familiar with and internalize those kinds of story beats something else wound around writing which i didn't figure out until i watched it again today i've watched this film four times in the past few days thomas when he tears apart her manuscript says that she's writing about what other authors have told her that she hasn't experienced life and that she can't be any good as an author with her childlike level this is a child at prayer approach to to life when he tells her i feel as though my heart is connected with yours and that if we were separated by distance or time that i would die it's coming from a place of truth that suggests now to me this is something that someone who is very, very connected to him has said to him, and he's using that. But he's also literally quoting a novel oh, really? in that moment. Oh, yeah. yes. No, yeah, Del Toro mentioned that. What, which uh, novel was it? It's, is that it's, Jane Austen? It's, it's a Jane Austen novel, oh, apparently. Right. Okay. Like, and it's a literally a quote from a novel that Edith has probably read, hmm. which is both highly calculated but deeply resonant for for like both characters so it's it would be the equivalent of him going you complete me in somewhere around 1997 <laughs> or, or like if anyone were to ever tell me as you wish <laughs> wish clearly uh, clearly she responded well to it Okay, and uh, then there's that uh, the the horrible autopsy of her father, and and Del Toro noted that uh, I'm going to try not to regurgitate too much from the uh, commentary. Just listen to the commentary, because it's 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 key for you to listen to the commentary. We're already an hour and a half in, and we've not even got to Act Two yet. But uh, he mentions that when people have terrible accidents and they're suffering from shock, they oftentimes fixate on silly, seemingly trivial details like where's my shoe when their arm's hanging off and she uh, notes that his hands are cold which is like a child would at that stage This is, I think from this point on the woman that she was trying to be is under fire mm -hmm. as in like there is a constant state of her falling backwards into childhood mm -hmm. For a very specific reason as well at this point. Mm -hmm. um, she's going back to when her mother died. Yes. When her mother died, she couldn't see her. Yeah. She has to see her father at this point. But it puts her back in that headspace. So she is the age in this scene that she was in the beginning scene when her mother died. Yeah.
And then we go to Cumberland and finally we begin Act 2 and it's this great big desolate field with this gaunt mansion hanging around at the back end of it. And again, like we've seen period dramas and period costume dramas before and we've seen things that are lavish before. But I've, I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you something which approaches this in terms of um, uh, just, just set design and, and, and how intricate it is and how sumptuous everything looks. At the same time, it's baleful and, 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 uh, and gothic and it has that sense of foreboding to it. And the castle itself, if you look at the ceilings, there's all of these designs that are sort of these conical, like, stalag tights is it tights yeah tights go down tights. yeah um and like there's the there's these sort of like they're bowing inwards it's like the ceiling is melting downwards it's cavernous and they're, they're all like like the, the, the house is closing in on you like a trap teeth it's, yeah teeth it, it may like and there's all of these pointy like you know the, the d- designs all around the corridors and sort of um like it feels like if you fell in that place, you'd do yourself a mischief pretty much anywhere. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a nasty splinter off that floor if nothing oh, yeah. else. Yeah. Um, oh, don't even think about the tetanus, my goodness. <laughs> oh God, the tetanus, the rust. <laughs> but a couple of things were noteworthy that when they approach Allerdale Hall, they've been travelling with Lucille, but Lucille is not in the carriage with them. I wound back and double checked. She is coming in a separate carriage, possibly with some other bags. That's a, a weird state of, like, she's been removed from this uh, this duo that she's she's used to and now has to go it alone, which, as we see later, she really doesn't handle well. So she's, well, she's already going to be very brittle when she turns up. Yeah, she is instinctively resentful of Edith, and I think that starts very early on. Um, obviously, when um, Thomas says he needs the ring, mm. she her hackles go up immediately. Um, but this was part of the plan, so you would assume that she would be okay with it to at least a degree. Mm. However, there is something specific about Edith that she's never had to contend with before, and that is that Thomas chose her. Mm. Thomas chose her. She's also young and clever, which uh, it would uh, appear that uh, that that's something that they've not had to contend with. And the seeds are laid when Edith gets there, and the groundskeeper uh, is introduced to her as his uh, wife and he says oh I know you've been married for a long time and at that exact point Edith should have gone whoa hold on a second what do you mean he's been married for a long time are you a bigamist and like the whole film falls apart at that stage but she doesn't she doesn't and then a little, little rat dog turns up and she's like who's is this rat dog and Thomas goes oh it's probably a stray and she's like well, that's a, a person's like posh little dog why is it hanging around this place oh I don't, don't know oh it's the mistress's dog I was like at this point Edith really start investigating and to her credit she does mm. that is not a dog that can survive in the wild I might just add <laughs> So uh, almost as soon as she gets in the door, there's a ghost sighting. She's like, I haven't even put down my purse. And there's a fucking ghost wandering off into the distance uh, in blurry as hell and immediately creepy with a little audible sting. Again, like a wonderful sense of... Like, like, hey, just so you know, this place is haunted as soon as you step inside. Like, you know, shit's about to go down. And um, she has... You know, she, she she wanders around looking for it because she's immediately inquisitive and it is a fascinating place. And clearly, you know, being a fan of gothic novels herself, she, you know, 
she's kind of taken with this place. Although I think the thing that really gets to her is how bloody cold it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, cold and horrible. The walls bleed. It's yes. covered with dead flies. <laughs> this is a place you run screaming from. You might also want to investigate if you don't mind being attacked by something terrible because well, it feels true. like this is one of those houses this where... This is the bathroom. This is the elevator. These are the dead things. <laughs> uh, so uh, Lucille arrives late and um, they they kind of reconcile and, and then she, um, Edith lays down her, I want this to be a place of friendship and love and Lucille smiles tightly. And this is... It's going to be hard for Jessica Chastain to top this, and she is a wonderful actress. I don't think we've actually covered her in in this show yet. Not much. Her or uh, Mia Wisikowski. She's um, their their alumni here, Mm. or newcomers. Yes. There's a very palpable mood of... Okay, right, so this is our new situation that uh, Chastain has to get across. Um, If you can find it, um, and this is hard to find on YouTube, you may have to search on Google and then click on the one that was actually on Jessica Chastain's Twitter feed. She won an award for being able to stare without blinking for two minutes. It's quite unnerving to, to watch her just sort of stare at the camera on this um, that Mexican talk show uh, while everyone's just sort of counting. And, and she starts crying with the intensity of the ordeal. But throughout the whole film, Lucille only, I believe, only blinks once. So it's like she got um, practice in on this one. Apparently she blinks three times and oh, they're almost times. all at the very end when she's beginning to lose control. Yeah. That would make sense. Um, there's a specific scene, or a specific moment in this scene that I think really represents what you're talking about, and it's when Edith steps forward to kiss Lucille's cheek, because mm-hmm. Lucille has this very delicate smile that doesn't reach her eyes, mm-hmm. and as soon as Edith can't see it, she loses that smile very subtly, and then as soon as Edith pulls away, that smile comes back. It's so quick and perfect mm-hmm. that it's, yeah, that's the part of the scene that really gets to the core of what you're talking about, I think. And uh, Edith uh, asks for a, uh, uh, quite logically, for a uh, set of the keys that um, uh, Lucille's holding. And Lucille says, no, 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 you don't need those because uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous house. It's very old in certain parts and uh, you really uh, shouldn't be wandering around this place in a kind of infantilizing, patronizing way. It's also slightly defensive. This is my house, you can't have the keys. Oh, yeah. As is visually exemplified, as soon as they leave the room, Lucille retracts the keys inside her wonderful, huge cuffs and sort of, like, pulls her hands in protectively, like, holding on to these secrets of hers. Mm, it's it's, uh, it's magnificent. Mm. The colour shifts as well here. Mm. Um, the walls of the house, if we ignore the red clay pouring down the various intervals, um, is like a deep um, kind of cyan blue, like a teal-type mm. colour. Um, and at this point, Lucille and Thomas are reflecting that colour as well, his suit, her dress. It's teal rather than cyan. Yeah, yeah OK. Um, but that um, that blue now dominates everything. It makes everything feel that much colder in tone, as well as in the fact that this is obviously a nightmare of a house to heat, uh, exemplified by the fact that there is snow on the floor <laughs> coming through the massive hole in the ceiling. And there's these wonderful particles are sort of uh, drifting down. It's like it almost looks like autumn leaves uh, in this, like in the center fo- foyer of this house. 
So you're outside whilst inside. Mm. It's very disorienting. Oh, that's it. You don't have snow at this point yet, do you? But you do have a big pile of dead leaves. Yeah, and you do get snow later on. Yes. You'll find out why it's called Crimson Peak. <gasps> Which, wow, that kind of begs a question. That's a four-story for- foyer, and we see the land. There are no trees there. Mm. Where in the world are those leaves coming from? The, the They've blown from the a long way? Somewhere. Maybe they should have bits to. of paper or something. <laughs> Yeah, it's something that you, like, hand wave away, but now that I'm thinking about it, like, huh. <laughs> it could be simply actually not leaves, but just particles of wood falling out of this rotting roof. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Could be, actually, yeah. But it's absolutely beautiful to, to look at. Um, so they immediately, uh, we get a promise of a bath, and uh, while uh, Edith is upstairs having her bath, um, Thomas and Lucille sit preparing tea because they are like straight away let's start giving her some tea shall we and uh, they have their uh, terse conversation which suggests that there is a little conflict between the two of them a conflict which is going to grow and while in the bath which is I believe is this the the second of Del Toro's bath trilogy or is there a fourth bath film because there's Pan's Labyrinth's bath and then there's the one in the, uh, the Shape of Water are we counting Santi's bath? <laughs> no, really, no. That's that's less a bath. It's got to be a beautiful bathtub. Yeah, yeah. But it's 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 a it's a creepy ass bathroom. Which you, by the way, said that that you would want this bathroom. That bathroom, I really like. I'm not sure why. It does look terrifying, but I don't care. I it's, like it. It's so focused, like the, on the bath itself, with the bath at the back being this this this. I think that's it because it's it's also it's surrounded by candles. You've got uh, Edith in the bath, which is it's, she's this sort of glowing spot of light in and of herself. <laughs> it just makes that whole area around the bath feel warm and cosy and like this tiny little nook of safety in this huge house of terror. I would feel like I was being watched all the time. Well, you meant to. From outside of the circle of this warmth. There's an eye-shaped window over the bath Hmm. that Hmm. is, is, because you're getting light through it with the sky outside, is a similar blue to the rest of the interior of the house. So the house itself is watching her at this point. And as she's bathing, we get the uh, one of the the second, well, technically the third ghost sighting within this house uh, of uh, an eyeless ghost, uh, something that uh, moves this crooked female and jittery, blood red, for no, uh, reasons we have not yet ascertained. Uh, but uh, she's missing the uh, ring finger on her hand and seems dazed and bewildered but while terrifying to look at it's absolutely easy to see this the second time around when you view it as again a warning rather than something which bears her ill will something there's something very pitiful about her as well well apart from anything else it's it's not sneaking up on her and grabbing her it's trying to reach out and communicate with her but can't because it appears to have no tongue we can actually hop, skip and jump through a lot of this early house stuff because we've kind of covered quite a bit of it already in some form or another. Yeah. But I love I love the little, uh, the end of that scene with the ball, the dog's ball rolling back. That's the shining, oh, It's just so it? good. It's so good. Yeah. So the, the fact that the house is blue, Thomas and Lucille are blue, and the whole theme with the keys 
sets this story up to be a, uh, a replication of the Bluebeard folktale. Bluebeard is about a young woman who is married off to a much older but very wealthy man who has a blue beard, um, and she's a little bit scared of him, but um, people persuade her to, you know, go off because he'll be good for you. And she gets to his castle, and he says, right, you can explore anywhere you want in the house. Um, here are all the keys, but there's one room that you must not go in, and it's this tiny little key here. Don't ever use it. So, she, you know, she enjoys herself exploring the house, but sooner or later the fact that this is the one forbidden closet of mystery of course she wants to go and look in it so one day he goes out she opens the door and finds inside the bones and uh, corpsified remains of all of his previous wives and um, the key gets covered in blood from the the bodies and so she shoots out the room locks the door he comes home she gives him the keys back and he sees the blood on the little key and realizes what's happened he is horrified and decides that it's now her turn to die um, she convinces him to give her a 15 minutes or a short period to pray and say her goodbyes. I think her sister's visiting or something like that and um, they basically stall for time until her brothers turn up and kill him. It's one of those kind of folk tales that don't have a really satisfying resolution ending yes again they (laughs) fudge the woodcutter turns up and chops off head the end it's it's Um, not uh, these are the tales where they haven't really thought about what has this person learned and how can that apply to the closer indeed yes it's that's how storytelling has advanced in recent years people really work on structure like that Mm. when it's done well but the what they're often interpreted as is sit and wait until a man comes and saves you Um, a a slightly better reading is you have an internal strength of your own use that to save you but that's bluebeard also, one thing I'd forgotten, uh, at the very beginning of this, when you get the Universal logo, it's the planet, for, well, the planet Earth for, for Universal, but it's all in crimson, and there's the sound of a child lullaby being uh, sung. And I realised in one of my more recent viewings, oh, God, that's that's Lucille. And she even says later on that, you know, that the, uh, the song she's playing now on the piano is a lullaby she used to sing to Thomas. So that's that particularly creepy child singing at the beginning is Lucille to Thomas and expressing that she sees him as perfect. We also get to see horrible old Lady Sharp in the picture here, which reminded me of the Black House from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, where you have this horrible racist old grandmother on a picture on the wall that they are obliged to keep there, holding baleful court over the entire building. Um... But one thing that struck me this time watching it, and this is really dodgy territory, so I'm going to try to be as discreet about this as possible. The first thing that Lucille does as a way of kind of bonding with Edith is to take her and show her pornography in a kind of, look what I found in this book. And she passes it off as kind of, well, you know all about that, since you and Thomas, uh, and then she kind of nods at him in a kind of, like, you need to tell me now if you've actually done this or not. Like, she actually wants to know this information from her, and she gets the satisfactory answer, which is, no, not yet. But the almost childlike, pre-adolescent way of, oh, look at this filthy thing I found, kind of makes me feel like that was discovered by her at a way too fucking young age. 
and you can extrapolate from that whatever you will. It kind of ties in with the idea of there having been abuse in that house of one form or another. Yeah. It's it's oftentimes people who've been subject to abuse will know more about sexual things than they ought to for their age, but not be able to communicate it in an, a, an appropriate way for the content. So the way they'll share it and express it is is kind of right for how old they are, but what they're expressing is not. So that, to me, kind of... That was one of the things that actually made Lucille more sympathetic to me because mm, it, mm. it really suggested that the things that she's been through and the things that she has done... Mm have had a massive impact on who she is as a person and they have the the lens that she sees the world through is distorted and that is not her fault the things she does the things she chooses to do they are her fault but the way she sees the world is not she doesn't know how to people yeah not entirely Exactly. She can do a pretty good job, of, as can Thomas, of pretending. Mm, but yeah. it's uh, there's something theatrical about it in both cases. Indeed. But yeah, I mean, in a way, I think she is kind of trying to bond with Edith a little bit um, in, a, in a very girly girl way that she has literally no experience of. Mm. But also, yes, she is trying to find out whether they have had sex yet, whether they've consummated their marriage. But an adult, if they really wanted to know, would just straight out ask. Mm. Has Thomas been able to, and then a nod? Yeah, there's subtle ways of doing it, but just a question. But that's not she's that's not an she adult part of her brain that's having oh. that conversation. Instead, she shows a really rather well drawn mm. piece of pornography to her, which is you know a, a, a neat little touch for Victorian books. Which reminds me again of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm. Can a man and a woman really do that? I did only last night. Um, <laughs> Fibber, you did well, not. <laughs> the other thing is as well, she is trying to shock Edith. Yes. And upset her. Mm. So th- there are there are multiple levels going on in that conversation. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I adore how into these characters all three actors got. They they really, because especially this being effectively for acts two and three, it's a bottle episode. Like they are stuck together. Mm. And it's about how the dynamics of these guys work when paired off and then when as a trio. Mm, yeah, and it emphasises as well the, again, the the negative effect of the intensity that has been Thomas and Lucille's relationship mm. so far. Thomas only really starts to see it when someone else is brought into it, into it that actually brings some light and air with them. And suddenly he realises he can't breathe and hasn't been able to breathe for years. Now, I'm actually going to jump ahead here because to really talk about what's been going on in Crimson Peak, we kind of have to start talking about the mystery unfolding. All right. Uh, I'd say we're at two hours now. We can bloody well talk about... um, (laughs) If you're still with us, we can spoil. At least the revelations of Act 2. Like, jumping ahead, and we can always cover the ground that we're jumping over right now, uh, straight afterwards. Uh, for, for one reason or another, Edith ends up being pointed by ghosts towards a closet that happens to contain wax cylinders, then winds up uh, accidentally uh, hiding from the ghosts down in the uh, cellar, which is this vast 
like red clay dripping abattoir looking kind of beautiful porcelain terrifying hole i hope all those contradictions make sense if you haven't seen the film um she's she finds uh luggage with enola written on it she steals the enola key from uh the hidden carefully um restricted key ring that uh, lucille holds onto uh, and uh, finds within the enola luggage the wax cylinder player and three envelopes with neat copper plate handwriting on them uh with the uh, with three women's names and dates which i believe was described by um colin farrell in minority report as an orgy of evidence as in all of this stuff that should have been thrown on the fire is just right there to be discovered it does seem a little odd that they've decided to keep everything that could pin anything to anybody it's so very in incriminating this one box. <laughs> it, it felt so much like a resident evil game oh where, yeah like you got these wax recordings so you do the next puzzle and oh you got the player but what i what i suspect um, and this is a lot of inference, but I think that Del Toro's films allow for this. Both of the characters that are complicit in the murders take trophies. Lucille's are trophies of conquest, while Thomas's are trophies of remembrance. And I think that that luggage in the basement is Thomas's trophies. His his like the the things so he can remember them because perhaps he actually did feel something for like he he had some kind of connection it wasn't necessarily love but like it's the things in that chest are way too sentimental for lucille to care about Mm. but feels like something thomas would hold on to that's true actually and the first um he's on the first cylinder yeah she gets him to talk and tries to get him to tell her that he loves her Mm-hmm. And then in the and second he, one, she's singing to him. Yeah, and he's enough of an engineer to, like, that kind of technology is automatically kind of connected to his character. And a lot of the photographs have him in it or opposite it. And it just, it feels like, yes, the logical thing would have been to destroy all of those things. But I feel like if anyone's going to be almost inappropriately sentimental or sentimental in a, a faulty way might be Thomas. Or maybe it was another power play, actually, because Lucille's the one who holds that key. I was just it, about to say, if he's only allowed access to it when she says he can. Yeah. That feels very in line with both characters. The idea of, oh, you kept these things, but I'm going to lock it away as, you know, that you can't see these. You don't have access unless I say so. It sounds like a very controlling Mm. uh, tactic for Lucille to take. And again, very, very much plays into it. So let's go through the ghosts in this film, because that plays into what Edith discovers here. There's Edith's mother at the beginning, taken by the black cholera, and she is one of only two ghosts in this film that are black in hue. Uh, All the rest of them are crimson, for a very good reason. The second uh, ghost is Beatrice Sharp. Technically not the second one sighted, but she's the mother of Thomas and Lucille, who was murdered with an enormous meat cleaver in the bath. And so her ghost is in the bath, bright red, and then staggers out, you know, stumbling towards uh, Edith, crying out in a pitiful manner. The third ghost, Pamela Upton, was the one who purchased the wax cylinder recording device. 
So this uh, Pamela Upton we see is the uh, ghost dragging herself along uh, on the floor without her wheelchair. And obviously the wheelchair that we see later on is hers. It's been That's vacated. That's Margaret. Is it? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Because I had to rewind this thing three times to make absolutely sure of these things. Fair enough. Okay. Uh Margaret McDermott, we see very little about, and uh, the uh, she uh, he married her in 1893. I believe she's the one with the caved-in frontal lobe um, that uh, we see with the uh, uh, near the bath. Okay, well, I, that's the one I thought was Pamela Upton. But it's like I said, really I had to rewind it three times and keep making notes because, like, she goes through these photographs. It's fairly quick fire, mm-hmm. and it keeps giving all this information. It's very dense as a moment. Mm-hmm. And the third wife, Enola Shotta, most likely the one in the closet, but uh, she uh, was the owner of the dog, and she was the one who tried to help raise the baby, save the baby. Specifically, when it was born, save the baby. It was dying. Hmm. He married her in 1896, and it could have been several years of them keeping her around. Mm. But uh, it would certainly appear that the uh, the the first time there was a six-year gap between wife one and two, and then only a three-year gap between wife two and three, and then a. Five, five year gap. Five year gap between wives and three. This and four. is supposed to be the last big score, I think. Yeah, this is their it's big not heist. To the point before. now where it's like if, if this doesn't get us enough to yeah. retire on, it's not happening. Mm. I do think Enola was around a little bit longer than they maybe intended. Well, there are a lot um, more photos of Enola. There are, and also she had time to work out what they were doing and record it on a wax cylinder. Mm. Well, all all of them recorded on a wax cylinder. Yes, but Enola's the but only Enola's one, the one, who, one said, who said, "Yeah, they're trying to they're kill trying me. to kill me." Yeah, and the poison is, of course, in the tea, as uh, a lot of people would have surmised from the fact that the, the tea looks poisonous. And Lucille keeps saying, "Drink your tea." Mm. She even at one point when they're up in the workshop, she sort of uh, brings up tea and goes, "Right, just going to try and keep her warm. Drink your tea," and gives her the tea. And Edith dutifully drinks it, and Lucille just watches her and holds her cup. Mm. But then it cuts away. I'm assuming she went, oh, yeah, I've got, uh, I'm not even thirsty, so I'm going to leave this. Although that is a power play on Thomas, right? I'm going to say a quick thing here about rooms. Go for it. Because, obviously, Lauren, you've talked about everybody having their totemic objects. In this, everybody has a room which is their space, which is representative of them. Edith's is back in her father's house. The room they give her here is not representative of her. Lucille has her own room, which is, I think, it's something like Thomas has half the attic and she has half the attic, and that's where they were spent a lot of their time together when they were children. Um, But she does have her own room, which we only see very briefly towards the end of the film. The parlour, which is where we see Lucille more, was their mother's room, but Lucille is trying to co-opt their mother by Mm. taking over the parlour and the piano and the, the trappings of their mother. To take that place of power. To take that place of power, exactly. Thomas's room is the workshop yeah. in the attic, and Edith is up there with him. They are alone. She is starting to show an interest in these toys that he's made. This is the other side of the coin of him being interested in her novel. Mm-hmm. She's expressing interest in the things that he's made. She's responding to him as an adult who's created something rather than patting him on the head and saying, oh, yes, you and your little toys. Even though it's a creepy-ass workshop full of doll's heads, Victorian doll's heads, exactly. staring Victorian doll's heads. I know, I know. <laughs> but he's, so he's actually 
actually starts to become in that moment adult and they start kissing for the first time and it looks as though the relationship is going to take that next step and then Lucille bursts in with the tea and that is you don't have that's this I don't think this is about Edith at this point this is for Thomas's benefit you don't have secrets from me Mm. you don't bring her up here when I'm not around here she's going to have this tea the reason he turns the tea down is because he knows what's in it But um, but this is this was specifically the bit that made me think of flowers in the attic. Mm. Um, there's an element of that. But imagine that 99 percent of our listeners have not read flowers in the attic. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> family of children get hidden away in an attic by their mother because she's trying to reconcile with her father, who never wanted her to go off with her husband and have kids. Um, it turns she summarise quicker. She's only supposed to keep them there for a short time, but they end up there for ages, and it eventually turns out that they, uh, she and their grandmother is trying to kill them by giving them donuts with powdered sugar on every day, which has arsenic mixed up in it. Jeez. So they are poisoning them inch by inch, which is what's going Making on Making them more and more. Yes, that, that I, I honestly feel like Del Toro has read that on an aeroplane somewhere. Absolutely. Also, it's a story about incest. There is that. Yes, which is quite a prominent feature in this. Spoiler warning, but mm. yes. Um, what Lucille can't do, though, is uh, to keep these young lovers apart, and when they uh, end up going to the post office on a trip, they, uh, uh, they are externally taking refuge from the house they're hiding away from the house they're hiding away from Lucille they're getting a little bit of privacy and they're relaxed for the first time ever and they have sex in a particularly steamy scene and it's one of truth where they both connect and uh, where uh, Thomas is on top to begin with but then uh, Edith changes it around and takes the control herself and he's absolutely fine with her doing that and it's a it's a lovely hot scene there's there is specifically an equality about it which seems to deliberately counterpoint what becomes evident later on is very much a dominant um, relationship that he is the the submissive party to And uh, there's a testing element to it as well, because she starts asking him uh, about whether he's been to uh, these various countries, including Milan, to see how he reacts. But when they get back, Lucille, there's a deleted scene. There's only about four minutes worth of deleted material, but uh, one of them I- involves Lucille alone in uh, Crimson Peak by the piano, as is her wont, just playing notes randomly and staring in the dark and the cold because she's been left alone and she's going stir crazy. Mm. And then, so that when they get back, there's this incredible tension as she's like, I was worried sick. And it kind of feels like Edith could have confronted her with, well, what precisely were we supposed to do? If we could get a message through to you, we'd have come ourselves. We couldn't get a message through to you. We were snowed in. Uh, There are no phones. What were we supposed to send you? A, A carrier pigeon? Lucille's response at this point, though, is is to do with her fractured sense of identity and the fact that when Thomas isn't there, she literally doesn't know who she is. She has spent over half her life trying to be everything to him. Sister, she's tried to be mother, she's tried to be lover, and at this point there is, there is no Lucille without Thomas. Mm. And to the concept of having him taken away pushes her dramatically over the edge. She's a loose seal at this stage. Ugh. Sorry. <laughs> well, you came up with Thomas was alone. 
And I didn't. I didn't. That was in the moment, and it's not a comedy bit. <laughs> also, I, at no point have I said anything about what remains of Edith Cushing. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, Lucille, rather than re- uh, reacting by slapping Edith as was originally uh, intended, throws the scrambled eggs she's been uh, preparing onto the table in a violent act of frustration. It's not just that but that she starts to pick up the eggs with a blank look on her face, just scraping them with her hands, which are clearly going to be burning her skin and pouring, like, putting them back into the saucepan, like, dragging those wonderful cuffs through this egg mess. And it's this sort of loss of self which is really unnerving. It's a magnificently performed moment. So what has happened, folks, is that uh, Thomas has been getting married uh, and uh, they have been slowly killing uh, the uh, wives and Thomas has been complicit with this but it has been powered by Lucille she's the one who wants to keep this murderous uh, pattern going at least until they've done this final heist the the, the big one, the mother load Mm. and Thomas starts pushing back on this Uh, it's, uh, there's a uh, the, the conflict grows because as it transpires he genuinely has fallen for Edith, that it was coming from a place of truth. And there is a connection between the two of them. And this is something that scares the living fuck out of Lucille. And it frustrates and angers her, and she can't cope with it, and she can't deal with it. And so a lot of the rest of the film is her trying to distract herself from this very growing real possibility. Mm. So now we're at the place where Edith has found all of these uh, huge amounts of evidence with all of these various wives. And she has to get the Enola key back onto the key ring and then run upstairs and pretend to be in the middle of a fainting fit while she has red clay on her dress uh, from wading around in the basement and pretending, I don't know anything about your terrible, terrible plans, um, to Lucille, who has to also pretend that she doesn't bear her dreadful ill will. So there's this sudden power play going on between these two women, neither of them trying to let on too much. And it's this battle of wills and uh, intellects between them, which, frankly, I could have taken a whole act of before the cat was out of the bag. And that scene is so beautifully done because that's that's um, <clears throat> very in the genre. It's, it's something like a, of a trope where, like, the, the main heroine has to like sneak a key or something back in. They have to like feign that they're not uh, interested, that they don't understand to their, you know, antagonist. And in a lot of films that's used to uh, media, really, that's used to enhance tension of the scene. Like, oh, no, are they going to find out? But this scene is wonderful because it still subverts it because Lucille is playing the part that the antagonist usually plays in this scene specifically to find out if that key reappears when she walks out of the room. Mm -hmm. And it's so calculated that Lucille plays Edith so hard when normally in that scene, it would be Edith who gets away scot-free or mostly scot-free. They walk away. Edith thinks that she's gotten away with it, but the whole thing was kind of Lucille's game in the first place. And she knows now that like, you know, where, where Edith hid the boots underneath the blanket that she you know, acted a certain way that you know, kept all of the um, wax recordings under the, the couch thing. But what Lucille wanted to know is if Edith would like take that bait and put that key back because she knew it was missing. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it's it was so good because it's using that language but then still subverting it and enhancing the tension but in the opposite way that it normally would because we finished that scene where we as the viewer are like oh my goodness like Lucille like what is she going to do now because she's like a loose cannon it's notable that uh, when the snow closed in and started turning red and uh, Thomas gives her a very offhand that's why it's called Crimson Peak not in not realising he's revealing something to her her mind immediately casts back to the time she met her mother and then almost immediately after that she sees their mother in the bath there's a moment around this point, I'm not so sure exactly where it comes in the timeline, but it's a really telling but short one. Um, when Lucille and um, Thomas go outside and are looking at his machine, mm-hmm. and he says, I can't wait to show it to Edith. And Lucille is furious. Mm. Even she, like She has no interest in this machine at all. Mm. But... The fact that Thomas wants to share something with Edith, again, it, it, it terrifies her, the idea that she's losing him even in part. That he wants to share, that Edith wants to share with him, but she can't share with anyone. Yeah. She ends up uh, coming upstairs to, uh, to, to find them together in, in the attic, engaged in a, a twisted sexual situation, and... Uh, she's appalled and runs away. And then there's a look on um, the face of Thomas, which is one of shame, and now you know what I am. I'm a monster. I can't hide this from you anymore. And he regrets his actions. And there's a look on Lucille's face of triumph, and now I can finally be who I actually am. I can drop this facade, this mask of civility, and I can be the real Lucille. And... From this point onwards, with her flowing robes, that's who we see. She's out of that dress now. She is the moth. She's this um, billowing specter of uh, uh, femininity and uh, rage and violence. And, you know, again, the costume's fantastic because Chastain's, you know, it it becomes this off-the-shoulder number with a sort of a, a dark burgundy ribbon wrapped around her midriff and um, there's a sort of a, a sensuality to it, but it, there's, a, there's a savagery in the way that she holds herself and her posture, and her eyes are so sharp and dangerous. And again, um, Chastain's been sort of gearing up to this one. I think the real achievement is that they don't go too far over the top. She never goes to full eye-rolling crazy. Mm. Well, I think you, you would lose a lot of the sympathy f- or the potential sympathy for her if they did that. Mm. Um, the other factor in, in how they play off each other at this point for me is one of the things that Del Toro wanted to do was explore this idea of, of sort of the two. Well, the two, obviously, there are multiple facets to what femininity is, but this idea of um, of two sides of the the female that um, Edith and Lucille represent. But whereas in a more traditional type story, you would have Lucille as being the, well, she's the strong one, but she's also the one who's, 
you know, you don't want to be like her. Ladies shouldn't be like her. They shouldn't be strong because that's dominant, domineering and mm. dangerous and you don't want to be like that. That's the witch. Yeah. Um, and uh, Edith, she's the she's the fragile one. She's the beautiful one that has to be taken care of. That's mm. what you should angle yourself more towards. But what, for me, is going on here and one of the things that I really love about the way their two characters play off each other is they are both incredibly strong. They are both survivors. The difference is Lucille's way of surviving has caused her to become fixed she cannot live any other way Edith's strength is flexible it adapts it allows her to change her approach depending on what she's being faced with and that to me is why she is the aspirational figure if you like in this it's not simply she's got strength it's the type of strength that she has it's also that difference between like true like no I don't want to say true love but like affectionate love for another person and obsessive love to control another person mm-hmm. and that's the real like dichotomy that's going on here obsession and control are just so integral to Lucille's characters I mean that's why she isn't a fixed point like you said she can't uh, escape the situation because outside of that if she wasn't in the situation that she manufactured she has no control or she has less control and that's wildly uncomfortable for her while Edith is gets more and more uncomfortable the more she is controlled and it's just ends up being this this story where it's a, a love story but it's way more a story about obsession mm. and abuse absolutely and and the way uh, lucille outlines the the pattern that their family grew up around the template she saw for the the person who was in power and was in control was their father who kicked down and then their mother tried to seize some of that control by beating on thomas and lucille's way of taking some control in this situation was to get between them and and it's really wonderfully exemplified by uh did did either of you catch their um family crest and the 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 um the three word uh what would it be title uh, not motto 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 that's the word i'm thinking of yeah the three word motto it's, on their family it's crest it's latin for death conquers all yeah mors omnia well it's mors winket omnia mm. and it's a take on an old latin phrase Amor omnia winket, which love means conquers love conquers all. So it's a bastardization of like one of the core tenets of the romance genre and making it death conquers all, which is like so it, it's so emblematic of both the gothic romance as a genre, but also specifically how they manage uh, as a family, because that's their family motto. Who's, it's not love. What family has their motto? The Adams family. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Adams family would love Aladdell Hall. They so really homely. Would. Yes. Um, <laughs> but that that actually that twisting is epitomized in in how what is left of these marriages goes forth. Death has conquered the women who loved Thomas. And the clay is taking what remains of their bodies, but their voices and their expressions of love to him, the photographs where they sit with him, they continue. They still exist. That's the best part, is that in the end, Edith is the representation of of actual love. 
and she's the one who wins out. Spoilers. The other women, their ghosts live on to try to help that goal through love. And even Thomas, whenever he flips, it's because of love. And even though the family's house and the family's motto is built on the idea that death is what conquers all, it's actually love that wins out. And the uh, spirits are red, indeed crimson, as we have not yet mentioned, because they were suspended in clay pits, which has eroded them in particularly twisted fashion. It, it looked as though uh, they, they were um, bundled up in pain with what had been done to them, but the, the way that the, the clay has worked on their forms, it, it's as though the house is constantly tearing them apart it makes me think of swamp mummies mm. the, the the way that swamps desiccate corpses to the point where it actually preserves them in this like really horrifying way it was very it reminded me a lot of that in a sense that like this house in this area is so fixed in in time and space that mm. that even the dead are are held there in sustained you know, sustained animation, in a sense, uh, by the very earth. Uh, so that was a lot of themes that I was thinking about, even just in the design of the, the ghosts, because they were very desiccated in appearance. Well, again, it's kind of a twisted echo of the, the chemicals that freeze them in place. Yes, yeah. We have a lot of uh, ancient peoples discovered in peat bogs in uh, in England and uh, the, the surrounding countries. They uh, They find the physical remains of people from thousands of years ago, preserved. And that's what ghosts might be, the remains of a soul, the imprint. You find this relic of a once upon a time, and it can tell you all sorts of things, but what it can tell you is limited. And one of the things that limits it is what you can understand. The thing that's really tragic is that you can mistake obsession for love. They even say at the end that um, you know, what, what Lucille felt for, for Thomas was love. That is not love. But what it is, is the, the outpouring of a very intense situation coming off the back of very poor neglectful abusive treatment and the the sensation that comes from anything positive in those circumstances can be so addictive just because it's relief from what you've been feeling before that that the concept of then having to do without that is unthinkable to, to Lucille, even to a degree to Thomas. He could have left years ago, but he can't because he is so chained to her. There's a lot of, of aspects of, of our culture and like what means love and like being jealous and, and like being very possessive and a lot of actions that like people think means love from a cultural perspective are actually very obsessive and uncomfortable and, and controlling. And there's an element to this film that is also kind of talking about the contrast with real love and that kind of like cultural script of love. 
um, that I was reading into it, which I think was uh, I was bringing to it more so than was intended, but something else I was thinking of. So how do you balance letting the actors influence the film while maintaining your vision? Well, it, I think that you enrich yourself if you listen. You know, I think that uh, the beauty is I write the characters through those biographies. Then the screenplay goes to the actors. Then those biographies go to the actors. And they can say, what if I do this? And it's, if it's a better idea, it's in. And those biographies, curiously enough, guide the set construction and the costume design. Because sets and costumes are not just images or eye candy. They are eye protein. And they, the way they dress, the way they stand on that dress or that wardrobe, tells you who they are. The places they live tell you who they are. And in some instances, you can even hide little clues about the story in the, in the set on the wardrobe. Well, here that's definitely the case, right? This house, which was built from scratch, from what I understand, yes. it lives and breathes. It's yes. a character in itself. Literally, yes. yes. How did you want to convey portions of the narrative <clears throat> through this incredible set? Well, there's many things. I mean, first of all, the basic is the oldest area, which is the one behind you, that's a Gothic structure. It's, it's really old. The, the cellar is the Romantic times. Then this area behind me is the more recent part of the house, which is a Gothic revival, 1800s, sort of too lavish, almost like a McMansion in Victorian style. And then within that, you have hidden things. The windows look like eyes, so they look like they're watching them. There are hidden human silhouettes everywhere in the corridor, in the paneling. There are words engraved in the uh, paneling, in the wallpaper. The, the theme of butterflies and moths is in the, in the floor patterns, in their clothes, in their shoulder pads. Lucille has uh, this beautiful robe. When she runs, it opens like a butterfly wings. Uh, the furniture is shaped like that, and the furniture is done in two sizes, smaller and bigger, so the actors look smaller or bigger in them, and so on and so on and so forth. I noticed that Edith, at a certain point, when she's sitting in the chair, it feels monstrous. Yes. I love that detail. And the, and the cup that they give her is this big. Yes. But there is also an inherent sensuality that runs throughout the film, even yes. though it is, it is a horrifying, uh, eerie film. There is that, and I think each character is actually going through their own sexual discovery. They are, they are, except I think, well, maybe all of them. I mean, I think uh, there is a beautiful moment in the movie where Tom and Mia make love, and, and contrary to normal Gothic romance where, or horror, where love uh, endangers the actor, the actress particularly, and, and is an, an herald of doom. Actually, love, uh, making love makes both of them stronger. It empowers Mia, the character of Edith, and it transforms Tom in a noticeable way. He really is, regains some power. And it's, it's a really uh, curious uh, movie in the sense that I agree with you, visually is very central. And the way the camera moves and the way the actors are awakened to each other in the course, it's a curious romance because they start falling in love after marriage. The doctor turns up here all the way from America. He, he, uh, he took a ship across the uh, Atlantic and then he found his way to Cumberland to give her a newspaper cutting. 
uh, after she's been thrown from a balcony, crashing to the ground. Uh, you know, the game is pretty much up, and uh, he gives her something that she could probably have found in a drawer if we really needed to get this thing into her hands to really just be the final piece of the puzzle in terms of uh, that, that these children were found in the house after the mother had a meat cleaver smashed into her head and they don't know exactly what happened but uh, whatever it was that happened clearly young Lucille the child before she was carted off to a lunatic asylum um, stole the cleaver and hid it underground from the police inspection because it's there and she claims that, that that's what happened but why do you think the doctor was here? Why was he doing this? What does that add to the film? This whole thread of him, you know, digging deeper into this and then making this massive journey here, only to then get stabbed. Because in a lesser film, he would be the hero. And and it's just another wonderful subversion in so many ways, where the... Uh, the the man who all this time loved the heroine and did all the detective work and dug up the secret and came to confront the the evil and whisk her back away to safety uh, in any other film would be the main focus of a lot of the scenes, even though he's like barely even shown in throughout most of the acts. It's just kind of like quick asides almost to have us learn more about what's going on. And, and then in the end, just gets stabbed twice and then hangs out in a basement until Edith comes to save him. <laughs> and, and that's awesome. Like, that is such a wonderful subversion because this is using gothic romance and this kind of idea to explore very feminine themes. And at no point did Del Toro want a masculine influence to rob the the movie of that importance mm. very specifically as well um alan at this point represents the the masculine world and its inability to help edith at this stage over the course of this film she has had a doctor a detective a lawyer and her father who is a businessman all acting in her interests none of whom are able to save her what saves her are the warnings of dead women and her own internal strength and, and each of those dead women are somewhat representative of a different aspect. Like the one has the child and the one was a literal mother. Like there's a lot of very feminine themes in even the individual ghosts. Uh, and so, yeah. It's, Two of it's, them were literal mothers. That's true, yeah. Uh, but it's just such a... I, I really enjoyed that he showed up, uh, as Del Toro put it, to be the damsel in distress. <laughs> yes. um, and but it, But it also gives Thomas, like his one actual well maybe the first true act of rebellion where he steps up because he knows that lucille's going to finish the job if he doesn't at least make it appear uh that he does and he you know he whispers to the doctor and he says you're a doctor show me where so the doctor like indicates a place that thomas can stab where it's not going to kill him although i'm sitting there and i'm like is that a kidney? I feel like that's a kidney. <laughs> um, so Del Toro like, really oh. needed a doctor on set and said, you're a doctor, show him where. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's reasonable enough. You've got two kidneys. Um, but the but it's just such a great moment because then it's, it's Thomas uh, specifically going against what Lucille wants him to do and hiding something from her that she doesn't expect at this mm. point because she thinks she has reasserted her dominance after essentially like taking advantage of him in the attic. Fairy tale uh, disobedience, ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
so yeah so it's 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 really delightful that the what would in any other lesser film be the masculine heroic role Mm. in this film serves only the purpose of uh telling the audience more information uh and propping up other characters growth which is usually the female role yeah Lucille takes her upstairs and tries uh, and forces her to sign a document which gives her entire fortune away to these two, uh, after which point she has every intention of butchering Edith. And she cuts off a lock of her hair and hides it with uh, four others uh, in a drawer perfectly arranged to show the mother, the three wives, and then Edith at the end. And they're four, five different shades of hair as well, which is kind of perfect. But she's a, a psychopath at this point. She's a, a, a serial killer who is saving trophies. And at the same time, she's giving this speech about how close she and Thomas were and how perfect he was and how she's doing it to protect him. And uh, she, uh, th- there's a tenderness in what she's saying, but there's this resignation and there's a, Relish, she says uh, that uh, the um, the horror ellipses the horror, but that she did for love because she, uh, she sees this as a monstrous love because she can't comprehend that it's obsession because she hasn't been reading the right books. I suspect actually that the the what this has stemmed from um, and what what cemented the impact of the abuse that the that Lucille and Thomas experienced at the hands of their parents was then being split up and sent to separate institutions Lucille to a, a an asylum and mm. Thomas to a boarding school they literally had no opportunity to find any way of reconciling what had happened to them mm. um, and what they'd done and, and in addition to reading the wrong books, it's not like she had any kind of role model given the kind of parents that we're told that she had. Mm. Yeah. And it sounds like she's uh, been told that uh, that she and uh, Thomas are loved whilst at the same time being hit. Yep, yep. And and even in her own mind, the act of taking the abuse on Thomas's behalf is an expression of her love in her mind. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it all comes together in a very complicated character that, again, I still kind of felt for even after they showed the horrible trophies. Mm-hmm. All the opposite might be true. And in fact, she uh, considers that, the, that those who hit and punish aren't capable of love, but that she um, can do terrible things whilst in her own mind loving, which justifies it. Mm. So she believes that she's righteous in doing so. Yeah. Well, the, the lullaby is a, an example of how she she wants to replace their mother for Thomas. She wants to remove the mother who abuses him and hurts him and replace her with a mother who loves him and, and protects him and brings him pleasure. It never says what happened to their father. He went off and drank himself to death. That was the impression I got. Spent spent all the money and disappeared. I believe Thomas says that he tried very difficult. He tried very hard to squander all their wealth, or something like that. Uh, There is, however, a really creepy mural on the wall that uh, Edith walks past earlier, which shows two children, clearly uh, Thomas and Lucille, uh, gathered around a campfire, burning the figure of a man. And I just wondered what that was supposed to represent. I didn't see that. You need to check it out. It's just before it cuts to the uh, uh, empty wheelchair with the smoky figure of uh, a ghost in it. 
Edith stabs uh, Lucille in the shoulder with a pen because it's got to be the shoulder because she's uh, a girl who's not going to immediately savagely kill just for her own um, salvation. Uh, and But it has to be with the pen because the pen is mightier than the sword and it's her totem and everything about it. I think, does she actually sign and then stab her? Yes, she does sign. Because the, the, documents documents are, the, the documents are still of value. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, she's, her, her attempt is to, is to get away, but not necessarily to kill Lucille, because she's better than Lucille. She's, uh, you know, she's deciding, like, at this stage she could kill her in reprisal, kill her in self-defence, kill her just out of blind panic, mm. but she has the wherewithal to just attempt to run away and attempt self-preservation and to see if she can save the Doctor as well. But when she comes across Thomas, she's immediately terrified of him, but he tells her to trust him and says that he wants to run away with her. But the first thing he does, though, is let her go. He says, you, you are free to go. I'd like to come with you. I just have to do one thing. But you go. Because he loves her. And that's the fundamental difference between uh, him and Lucille. Mm. Uh, and he could say, no, you stay here just for a moment. I, you know, I, I, I want to leave with you, which is suggestive of I want to have you. But he doesn't. He just wants her to be safe. And, and the, the specific dialogue is so, so good. Because in her panic, she says, you lied to me. You poisoned me. I thought you loved me. Mm. And Thomas says, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I do. And it's that yes, I do at the end that, like, holds her back for a moment and, like, takes her out of that panic. And it's just so wonderful. Because uh, Thomas was complicit in the murders of uh, four women including his own mother, and uh, it's not wholly forgivable simply because he has this turnabout. He is a very complex character. Uh, He's not a wonderful person. He is, however, a very tragic person that it is very easy to feel pity for, and he wants to make amends. He wants there to be freedom and, and, and some sense of future. He still believes that he and Lucille and Edith can actually have... A life, and it's when he confronts Lucille, now wounded, with this, and the fact that she can't, like, that's the turning point for her. She's like, what? To share you, to have her as part of our life, this is unthinkable to me. And that is the tragic, fundamental difference between the two of them that means they can never be together. And Lyra commented at this point, I, I fast forwarded over the really grisly parts, which meant quite a lot of this scene, um, and the racier bits, obviously, as well. But uh, she said at that point, Lucille should just kill herself just because she's realized that, you know, she's horribly bad for Thomas. And I said, that's very um, a very mature statement. Uh, Lucille doesn't have to necessarily do that, but it's still better than killing him out of, of uh, uh, frustration and, and, and uh, love mixed with hate and, and resentment and, and pain. But, which is what she does. But that is fundamentally part of the difference between them at this point, and this is why, even if they don't see it themselves, the audience can see this, that Thomas is potentially redeemable and Lucille is probably not. And the reason for that is that he has at least grown somehow um, in, in through all of this going on. He has been 
tasking himself with having the estate live again, of having this all stop and then being able to carry on with their lives, Lucille wants to live in a loop. She wants to repeat the same thing over and over again. Mm. So Edith wouldn't have been the last. No. And, And also we've seen that in every instance where Lucille loses control or or feels like she has lost control of the situation, she lashes out irrationally. Mm. Uh, I I think that that's why she kills Edith's father, uh, because at that point he already gave them a big check to cash. If Thomas were to still run away with Edith, I mean, they probably would have still gotten all that money. They didn't necessarily need to kill him, but she does it because she was disrespected, because he put a hole in their plan, and he was pointing at, like, showing her that she didn't have control of this situation. You may have reminded uh, her of her father as well. Absolutely. And then earlier we see whenever... Uh, Edith and Thomas come back from the night at the post office where Lucille's really feeling like she's losing control and she smashes the the scrambled eggs like the the red hot pan with her bare hand like on the table like that lashing out in the moment is just something we've seen again and again from this character that she doesn't necessarily like as soon as she feels like she's losing control she actually does mm, and yeah. and it becomes like this lashing out of her passions and her emotions and that's why after she stabs uh thomas several times comes to her senses and realizes like oh my goodness what have i done and like cradles him in a a somewhat uncomfortably motherly way and then is like no edith did this and then that's when she runs out to go and, and finish the job and that sense of restriction and control is again another thing that comes through in her costumes it's all corsets and lacings and things held in very very tightly so that when those things are let go oh my god do they go mm. and the actual murder of thomas is really upsetting the uh, for, for me the um when she stabs him he's not angry at her he's sad and in pain and panicked and uh then she stabs him in the face and that's the one that just like it's i can't remember a single other time when i've seen that in a film and had the reaction be so sharp when he pulls it out of himself and he's not recriminatory of her he doesn't blame her and he knows that she's suffering for doing it and she immediately regrets it and he's just so sad that what he felt like he was close to being able to achieve is now in ruins and when he goes it's 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 in a moment of there's forgiveness there but it's a very complex death scene. Yeah. And I, and I can't believe that that him pulling that knife out was an appliance. Mm. That was a practical effect. Mm. And it's, it's, that, that's, that's a heart wrenching moment. And then it, it's, it's un, almost undercut by the, the, the madness that follows as the, they, they chase each other around the house, which actually feels much more like the trappings of, of horror. And like, you know, for a, a little while, like she's the last girl. She's, uh, this could have been why it's the reason that a lot of people don't like sunshine. And I don't feel that that element of sunshine detracts from all the rest of the magnificence in that film. I, I think as well there's a there's just 
um, to come back to what I said before about the reason that the blade is not used when um, Edith's father is killed, mm. because and this is the bit that I feel like would be uh, lessened mm. if blades had been used earlier on. Yeah. But this segment has an almost comedic level of escalation as far as the weapons are concerned because it starts with the pen mm. then it goes to the letter opener mm. then Edith gets a carving knife mm. then Lucille goes for the cleaver and then they end on the shovel <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Daffy Duck and Bugs absolutely it's got visions of them running backwards and forwards across the screen with steadily increasing size of weapon oh no actually that was Marvin the Martian that was uh, uh, the one where uh, they end up like, like devastating one another with ridiculous weapons yeah. Yes, they blow up the entire world, mm. don't they? But it's a murderous chase, and it, it takes them down into the basement of the subconscious and then back up and through into the whiteness, the endlessness. GDT says that uh, the white is representative of death in some Eastern cultures, and it's kind of a limbo. They are no longer in the house, but they can't be free of it. Mm until there's some form of resolution and they're running around this this skeleton of Thomas's machine uh, that's now started working again and started drawing uh, things up so there's all this metal clanking away and the, um, the, the mist that surrounds them it's, it's very Silent Hill mm. as well it, it also reminds me of the desert of the real in The Matrix they get to choose what happens out of this it's, mm. a, it's a void it's not a blank oh. void but it's a void Oh my goodness, something just occurred to me. That machine didn't work until he got the part from the post office. Yeah. And if we go back to what I was talking about with the totemic example of it, that was like representative of his like coming to adulthood. And the post office was both the turning point for him regaining control of his life and, and going against what Lucille has been controlling him to do, but also him getting the machine to finally work and like move on to that. It's ah, it's so perfect. And uh, the the thing that draws the fight to a close is uh, Thomas appears first to Edith and then finally to Lucille. And I hadn't thought until we saw that this time that that means that Lucille has been living in that house not seeing all of those ghosts. And there's a, there's a deleted scene where Thomas keeps uh, Thomas turns around and looks at the fire as it blazes away because the east wind is making the house breathe and it feels like during those moments the ghosts are their most active and the house seems alive. It reminds me of Monster House. What Edith says earlier to uh, the Doctor is that you have to be ready to see it, and that's actually because something's changed in Lucille that although uh, Thomas is the one who goes through an arc, Lucille actually feels something here she hasn't felt before, and that is regret. She's ready to see Thomas at last here because she has had a lifetime of murderous actions taking people out of the picture who were innocent uh, and her mother. Now, finally, she's, she's committed a murder that, she, she, that has deeply troubled her, and so, of course, she can see him. And, of course, that realisation takes away the last of her fight. Yeah, and she basically commits, like, suicide by Edith. Like, mm. she, she keeps saying, I'm not going to stop, I'm not going to stop. And Edith even gets the, her, the, like, the hero one-liner saying, I heard you the first time. <laughs> With a very cool wit like that, I, I could, could be an action, action hero. hero. Can you dig it? <laughs> 
But might just as well shovel it in. <laughs> but but after Lucille sees Thomas, all of the fights left her, but she still like tries to drive Edith to kill her is like how I read that final scene. Yeah. There's no fight left in her, but the obsession is still running its course. Mm. And uh, Thomas is now uh, clad in, he's been clad in the house colors before this dark teal green blue uh, that he and uh, Lucille both wore within, uh, within that house. And now out here, he's clad in ivory and rust which is kind of, um, the, the rust obviously relates to his machine, the ivory relates to uh, uh, Edith, and uh, because she's often painted in pale or gold colours, uh, as being the butterfly that she is. And there's this, this, again, this sadness between them, and there's this wonderful callback to uh, The Devil's Backbone, like this, this little Easter egg for people who are watching out for it, the way that the uh, blood leaking out of his face drifts upwards and away, um, as though suspended. And it's this thus feels like a trilogy with uh, Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's Backbone, in that it starts with ghosts, it moves on to fantasy, and then it ends with ghosts. And of course there's another trilogy with uh, um, uh, Pan's Labyrinth and the Hellboys, um, regarding the, the expansion of the, the magical world. Ooh, two triangles mm. that intersect to make a six-point star. Yeah. Hmm. It really just makes me think that there's a, a GDT cinematic universe uh, where all of these things have taken place at the same time. Yeah, we mentioned that last week on the um, uh, Hellboy Two show. It was, uh, it, it, it feels like a cohesive history. Mm. And the the aftermath of uh, Thomas's final death when he drifts away under Edith's fingertips. Mm. Um, he drifts backwards and fuses with his machine. Mm. And then in the final <laughs> closing scene, Lucille has fused with the house, which means that they will eternally now be apart. Yes. Lucille gets what she always wanted. Yeah. She, she's in the house and she never has to leave. Mm. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's at a cost, the, um, the, the absence of Thomas that she felt uh, that it would have been palpable during that one brief deleted scene where she's uh, hanging around the uh, house uh, with the piano on her own, that sense of loss would stay with her. That sense of pain is what makes her a ghost. Mm, yeah. And it is a beyond beautiful final sequence. And does Thomas not need to remain because he doesn't have that? Yeah, no. I think he wanted he's to be free, and he's he did arc. what he wanted to do. Edith is free. Edith will live. He has achieved one good thing with his life. He can be at peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I rationalise it that way. And and Edith gets to escape with the damsel after pulling <laughs> him out of the basement, and uh, to to find all of the townsfolk that he had asked to come meet him. And then gets to write the book. Yeah. She gets to do exactly what uh, she, she always wanted and, and, and calls it Crimson Peak. Originally, it was going to be called Figures in the Mist. But yeah. uh, Crimson Peak's a way better name. Mm. Yeah, I agree. 
But to bring it back to uh, uh, Bluebeard, this uh, film is about curiosity as a survival instinct. The uh, other three wives were not curious enough. Mm. Uh, The third wife was shrewd enough to uh, attempt to uh, not so much call for help but leave some message regarding what was going on as she realised she was weakening Uh, but the fact that Edith is very curious and shrewd about what she does, this is the polar opposite of the kind of fairy tales that tell you don't leave the fire circle this is the mythology of once you're in a dangerous place, use your brain, otherwise you won't survive this is what you do to get out of this, exactly the, the uh, Bluebeard story is one that has been interpreted by some as being a caution about women's curiosity. Mm. That, you know, don't go looking in that room. But what, it, what happens if you don't go looking in that room? You remain the wife to somebody who is eventually going to kill you and put you in that room. Yeah. Look in the room, ladies. Always look in the room. Oh, and uh, just as a correction, in case I don't catch it in the edit, uh, I think I said that he was interested in the... Uh, mechanics of horror but not the trappings of horror it's the other way around he's disinterested in the mechanics of horror he's very interested in the aesthetics of horror he loves the idea of what feels like a horror movie but isn't necessarily going to follow any i think the the spirit of what i said matched up with that Mm. but uh what he does with his films feels like it should go one way but it confounds those instincts. It's an echo of the warning that comes in a dream where something is chasing you. If you keep running away from it, all that will happen is it will keep pursuing you. You have to stop and turn round and either look at it or punch it in the face. Oh, and one other little thing. When Lucille is feeding uh, Edith the poisoned tea and during that section of the film... Edith is reduced to uh, a child. Her hair looks very much like an unkempt child. Her sleeves get very big and puffy. She's become this bedraggled butterfly. Uh, They increase the size of the furniture around her and the teacups to make it look like she's shrinking to give it a slightly Alice in Wonderland feel. And, of course, she played Alice in Wonderland. And this now makes me think about what GDT would do with an Alice in Wonderland story, given... The proper license by Disney. That would be something to see. It would. Wouldn't it just? I believe one of his next projects is Pinocchio, so we'll see how he handles another famous Disney property, even though it's probably not a Disney film. Here's a short clip from the thoroughly... Guillermo del Toro inspired. Let them go, currently reaching its climax. She dragged the heavy dresser across to block the doorway, then stood in the centre of the room, unable to decide how best to wait. Should she die upon her feet or cowering in a corner? Glancing down, her mind too chaotic to focus, a great surrender came over Rebecca. As she at last drew back the covers of the bed, climbed under them, and shrouded herself in cold cotton. It felt strange under there, wearing boots and a dress. Her woozy thoughts drifted to Amanda and how pleasant her sister seemed to have found it. Nausea threatened to overwhelm as her eyes screwed tightly shut. If you stay inside, you'll die. 
the urging voice continued. How long can you really last? Bad things happen outside. Now, Rebecca realized she was not alone. There was a rattling cough, which seemed to echo from room to room, winding up pressed against her ear. The pounding sounds from downstairs had abated. Was he already free? Then a pained little breath from agonized lungs was let out next to her. When she opened her eyes and pulled back the covers, his little form would be bearing down upon her, his face pale, his lips blue yet unseen, as he stood silhouetted against the pre-dawn sky. If you want to hear that whole story, look for The New Century Multiverse wherever you find podcasts. It just so happens to feature Sharon's absolutely finest dramatic performance. New Century and School of Movies are funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. There would be neither of them without you. And our $15 tier get a named credit on every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Sabard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. I think the cinematography in this is outstanding. The, oh, absolutely. The, the prevalence of long takes specifically to establish the space are so amazing. There, there's one in particular that I'm rem- remembering where Edith is walking through the hallways. I think it's right before she finds the wax cylinders and the camera itself is almost like dancing with her. Like it, it actually goes around her at one point to show that like, no, this is a full space. And GDT is so good at doing long takes to establish locations like this and make it feel lived in, in like a real place. And, and uh, it's just another aspect of this film that's just so beautiful we will be back next week with the shape of water the final thing i'll leave you on is like i said to as a callback to an earlier film um had thomas actually remained in the house he could have given this exact same monologue to close out the film what is a ghost a tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and again an instant of pain perhaps something dead which still seems to be alive An emotion suspended in time, like a blurred photograph, like an insect trapped in amber. A ghost, that is what I am. But Lucille lacks the introspection to be able to make that judgment. So she could never have given that monologue. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. out.